Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina, February 16. It's a Friday morning, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, Josh. Good morning. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. Take care of some business real quick. Okay. All right. I don't know why oh. I forgot to turn those lights on and turn these others down. Um, introduce yourself, Rev and Josh. Okay, while you're adjusting the lights, well, uh, you know, my name is Dave. I'm usually here every what, morning what am I on time. This morning? Introduce myself. Well, I mean, I've already heck? got sticker shock. I've already got sticker shock. It's not even <laughs> seven o'clock. It's not even six thirty this morning. I stopped at the convenience store. Got up real early. I mean, I normally get up at four thirty. Got up at four. Um, couldn't go back to sleep. Got up. Got ready. Stopped by a convenience store that opens early in the morning. They make these little peanut butter cups. They're not Reese's. They're not sugar enhanced. I mean, they're no sugar. I think one less than one gram of sugar. Got a lot of protein. I just felt I needed kind of a protein boost uh, this morning. Got the little um, protein-enhanced peanut butter cups and a small bag of sea salt and whole cashews, and it was $647. <laughs> so I owe the people. I had 100 bucks on me. I said, I'll get back after I do this highfalutin radio show with the other 500 and whatever. It was 9 bucks. I mean, I told Rev, it was 9 bucks. I was about... Kind of, you know, just, just groggy and walked in and, hey, just, yeah, this will work and this will work. I'm thinking four bucks, maybe five. Yeah, that should have cost you five max. It's nine. In normal nine, times. Nine dollars. So let's hold on to that for a second. Uh, we don't have any sports to talk about today. Do want a programming note. Um, and I'm convinced that the reason my voice struggled in the last several days is the morning that I try to be all about that and you know i'm not senile and i yelled it out i'm not senile as with biden i yelled it out gotta let your voice warm up a little bit um i got the cough drops in the truck i'm totally out of sorts uh this morning sticker shop nine bucks Mm. for a little small bag of cashews it would be a palm full i mean it'd be a palm full of cashews and two uh protein enhanced peanut butter cups nine um dollars eight four three six six one oh nine three seven I was riding over yesterday morning, and I wrote this down, 666. I mean, if you're a Christian, that's Mark of the Beast. Right, Josh? I mean, that would be that's right. c- kind of the Mark of the Antichrist. Don't write um, it down. Well, it, 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 it's apparently now, um, it's apparently now the new, um, we talked about generational issues yesterday, baby boomers. I mean, I've coined the phrase boomer neoconservatism is waning. It's on its last leg. It's become lazy. I mean, it's really, I mean, I heard a, a debate yesterday and somebody was asking about, well, you know, why do you support funding for Ukraine? Well, Putin's the next Hitler. I mean, it's real lazy in their defense of that. And I think Lindsey Graham, I mean, if Lindsey wants to send Ukraine money, just do it. Don't call it a loan. I mean, how in God's name could a country toward a smithereens that has no workforce pay back $60 billion? I mean, I guess you'd beat them out of their lithium or whatever some of the minerals they've got as, uh, as raw deposits. I mean, don't, don't, don't do that. I mean, don't, don't, it's almost like my kid saying, Hey, can I borrow 10 bucks? I said, no, but I'll give you 10 bucks. I mean, I'd, I'd rather not call this a loan. I'll give it to you. Cause I know your intent to pay me back is slim to none and slim just left town. So let's just call it a gift. I am granting you. I'm 10 bucks. They would always, my, my middle kid in particular, would always, Hey, can I borrow 20 bucks? Okay. Um, what, what tab you want me to put that on? Cause I don't have any room on the other. <laughs> The job of a parent. Um, sure. but, but anyway, we talked a lot about generational issues. So I heard somebody say yesterday something I thought was kind of interesting. Um, it was talking about, you know, it was a younger man, and we were talking about the sort of relationships. And, Josh, 
talking about the sort of relationship that young women, young men and women are looking for today. And the guy, the guy said, I can tell women are looking for today, 666. I said, look, looking for the devil? Somebody who worships the Antichrist? I said, no, six foot, six pack, and six figure income. <laughs> I mean, if you're six foot, six pack, and have a six figure income, you don't have any problem. If you don't, if you don't, then you better, better hope you find yeah. somebody like Fanny or Fonny. <laughs> Fonny said she don't drink wine. She prefers Grey, Grey Goose. Grey Goose, all yeah. that. Um, the, um, the arbiter of truth and justice in hot Atlanta, Fonny Willis, took the stage yesterday, and wow, wow. I don't know how many of you seen that, had heard excerpts. She's leaning back just as casual as can be. Hey, I ain't on trial. They're on trial. They're on trial. Don't try to put me on trial. She made the weird argument that she had money left over in her campaign. What she's trying to do is wiggle off the hook that mis- she misused public funds. I mean, that could be the most serious trouble. She can be a B-I-T-C-H. I mean, there's no law against that. She can be one of those. She can be a racist. There's no law against that. I mean, she's probably both. I mean, I don't know that she's a B-I-T-C-H. She's a racist. I mean, there's no question about that. She's going to get the guy that symbolizes, you know, the um, the working stiff that she believes is the most racist person in America. But that's her whole shtick. It's easy to pick up on that. Um, but there's no there's no crime against being racist. There's no crime against being, I mean, I hate crimes and things like that, but I'm talking about you have a right to be a racist. You have a right to be a, you know, a, a son of a gun. I mean, you have a right to be mean and ugly and not responsible and unaccountable. You have a right to do all that as long as you don't, violate uh, laws, but her only concern is the misuse of, excuse me, the misuse of um, public funds, taxpayer dollars, um, herself benefiting from taxpayer dollars. So her argument is, yeah, we went to the Caribbean. Yeah, we went to Napa Valley and yeah, he paid for it, but I paid him back with some cash I had in my house left over from my campaign. <laughs> from my campaign and i'm like why did i think of that i mean why did i think of that That does not uh, that not open another can of worms it's crazy i mean it's crazy but the sense of entitlement i mean she's laid back in that chair you know i don't have to answer anybody because i'm going after donald trump and i told people i was going after donald trump and here's the dirty secret you ready and i'm in hot atlanta i'm in hot atlanta and you don't mess with me in hot atlanta I don't care about Cheeto Jesus. I don't care about that, that army of working class stiffs he's got in his corner. I'm in Hot Atlanta, and I call the shots in Hot Atlanta. And I don't drink wine. I drink Grey Goose. But the argument is, and it's, it's a pretty smart argument. I mean, it's street smart. You can't track cash money. Now, I don't know why she said she had some money left over in a campaign account. I mean, that sounds like something I would do. I mean, how stupid is that? But anyway, um, We'll try to play a little bit of that as the show progresses this morning. I got a smart boy feature. I'm going to kind of get into some of the, um, th- this would be a more important story. I'm ah, more important than Fonny. I don't know what's more important than somebody trying to indict a president for the first time in American history. I mean, just think of that guys and ladies, that's the person, you know, laid back saying, I don't like wine. I like gray goose. And I had cash in my house left over from my campaign. And yeah, me and old Bo, we did go to Napa Valley in the Caribbean. And yeah, I did. And I did. I mean, we, we both lied on our, uh, on our depositions. We did. I mean, we both lied on our, um, I mean, you know, could, did she purge herself? I don't know. 
Did he perjure himself? I don't know, but they lied on their um, on the statement they gave to the attorneys when they said they didn't have a relationship prior to him getting hired as one of these RICO attorneys who's never practiced RICO law. I mean, you can't make it up. He's he's in one of the most high-profile RICO cases in the history of the country, and he's never practiced RICO law. But he's sleeping with Fonny. But he wasn't sleeping with Fonny. They only began sleeping with one another after he got the job. Well, I mean, they both admitted yesterday, yeah, I mean, we slept a time or two together, you know, prior to that. Uh, the, the, the Georgia taxpayer has paid Nathan Wade $646,000. I mean, it's hard to say he paid the rent with this dollar. He paid, you know, the, the power bill with that dollar. He paid his Uber fee with that dollar. I mean, that would be hard to distinguish but he stumbled on a job that paid him six hundred some odd thousand dollars, and he was sleeping with a lady that gave him the job. He and the lady that gave him the job at the Napa Valley of the Caribbean, he paid for it all. She went and got cash out of her house that she had left over from her campaign account and paid him back. So she's not misused campaign fund. Now we are a nation in decline. Are we that damn stupid? Because if we are, I want Tucker to tell me how to get to Moscow. I mean, if we're in that state, if, if, if anybody in America buys that salad of nonsense, then I want to go to Moscow because I like my fate and future better defined by dictators and communists better than voters who have a right and authority to vote for somebody like that to equally apply justice. Let's go to the phone. Dan in Loris. Good morning, Dan. You're on the air. Good morning. Hey, Ken. How are you? Hey, Dan. How are you? Uh, tell Josh it's Loris, South Carolina. I don't know if there's another Loris, South Carolina in the whole nation. The Loris Lions. I played a lot of football <laughs> and baseball and basketball. They were in Region 7 AA when I was, and we made a lot of trips to North Myrtle, Ainer, and Loris. <laughs> I'm actually up on the state line between Tabor City, North Carolina, and Loris. Okay. Uh, Ken, uh, I, you almost hit what I was going to say right there at the end, but I'll just give you kudos on if we have become so stupid to believe what little bit I saw of that debacle in Atlanta yesterday, we're, I don't even want to talk politics this morning. We better start praying. Uh, but, uh, Ken, I don't know how long it's been since you told this, uh, but I love to hear the story about Mr. Jimmy, and I don't want to go into why I know him as Mr. Jimmy, but, uh, when y'all went to Disney World and he thought he had enough money down there, you remember? I remember well. <laughs> I didn't know if you just, I, didn't, I don't know how many new listeners you had, but that, I always enjoy hearing that. Thank you, Ken, for all you do, folks. Thank you. Appreciate you. Keep them straight up on the, on the state line. Um, yeah, my dad, well, I mean, it was, it was crazy. I mean, it, well, it wasn't crazy. It's the way it probably ought to be. My dad... Um, did a lot of work for farmers and plumbers and electricians. And that was back in the day when you had cash, you weren't a criminal. I mean, they didn't look at you like, how'd you get that? Well, I worked for it. I earned it. None of your damn business. I got it. And my dad would have what he called walking around money, folding money. I mean, never called it cash. It was always folding money. He'd always tell my brother and I, and I love this about that. He would always tell my brother and I, Hey, see me before y'all go home. We knew what that meant. You know what I mean? My brother and I knew what that meant. He'd always, uh, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, he'd walk through that building, and we work and doing our thing, and he'd say, see me before y'all go home. Oh, yeah. I mean, we, Get we a little folding money? We don't miss that. So, you know, we, we took off pickup beds and van bodies and all these other sorts of things, 
anywhere that there was some cash money. Now, now once again, there, there may be an IRS agent who's put me in prison because of this, because of the way government's become so damn punitive. But, um, and, and I want to say this, because this will be the first. We didn't build this nation conforming to what a bunch of bureaucrats said. If we built this nation based on what a bunch of bureaucrats demanded of us to do, we'd still be buying the king because nobody would have the courage to stand up. Nonconformists have their fingerprints all over the greatest nation of the history of mankind. Bureaucrats wearing nice suits in corner offices in D.C. believe they built this nation, and they're the safekeepers and guardians. But people like my dad built this nation. They had the guts, gumption, and really a genuine resistance to government, a disdain of government. That's the beauty. That's the greatness of America. And we're, we're, we're basically convincing the masses that those people are dangerous. I mean, they, you know, they don't follow the rules. They don't obey the laws. Um, yeah, the king had laws. We'd still be bowing to the king if a bunch of bureaucrats, graduates, uh, graduates from Ivy League schools were running the country. We'd be bowing to a king. Now, they'd be getting paid to bow to the king, and we'd be at the mercy of the king. But my dad would sell things. He'd sell van bodies, truck, uh, pickup beds. We'd take a pickup bed off a truck, put a service bed on. We'd take a van body off a truck, put a dump bed on. And, you know, somebody would come along. We had six or eight dealers, like like junk dealers and things like that. And they'd say, hey, I need three pickup beds and two van bodies. Uh, two, I got two 24s and two 22s and two 8s, whatever, whatever it was. And we'd let, or my dad would let the cash accumulate. He'd, he'd, um, he'd disperse, at times friendly, at times not so friendly, to my brother and I. And we'd get us a little money, and we'd live a week or two or three, and then we'd get another little piece of money because uh, we didn't make much money. I mean, my dad was very demanding of his two boys about you're going to learn the hard way. I mean, you know, you don't start off running the business. You sweep the floor, you run the grinders, you make what everybody else makes, and you decide how much money you want to make by, the, you know, how much you want to invest in the bit. Anyway, um, he would, at times he'd let his build up a little bit, and, um, and then he'd say, hey, what y'all doing six weeks from now? I don't know. Let's go to Disney on me. And we'd, we, you know, we, we'd all load up at a motorhome, all load up in a motorhome and go to Disney. And, um, <laughs> and one of these years, it might have been the first time we ever went down there as a group. My brother had two kids. I had two kids. I mean, there must have been eight or ten of us. And he wanted to be America's host. I mean, he wanted to be the guy that did everything for everybody. My dad would rather carry everybody than give people the money for them to go themselves. I mean, he wanted to be the ringleader, and God bless him. He wanted to be the ringleader. So he's got this big pocket of money. And, I mean, you could see he had a big pocket of money in his jeans. And he was like, I don't care what, we're going to have a big time. I mean, we're going to roll like Rockefellers down here this week. So we go to Disney, and they had these three-day hopper passes. You know, you can go on a Friday, a Saturday, and a Sunday, and it would have been six adults and five kids or whatever. And <laughs> the lady the lady told him the price, and my brother and I looked and went like, damn, it's in Pamplico. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, it was, it was an outrageous amount of money. Even back then, it was an outrageous amount of money. So my dad, I mean, he just counted them off. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, whatever it was, slid it under that little window. You know how they got a little semicircle cut in the window, slid it under. Oh, yeah. She punched out the tickets, gave the tickets. We gave everybody their wristbands or whatever. And the look on it. The look on his face as he walked through that gate, and I can see it like it's yesterday. The look on his face was like, I've got nowhere near enough damn money. <laughs> we'll be eating sardines 
by Saturday afternoon. I got nowhere near enough money, and it's priceless to me. It, it was just, it was such a I mean it, it was like a revelation to me when when and and he didn't say a word. I mean he didn't want us to worry about it, and I don't know what he did. He might have Western Union. I mean we had an office personnel knowing my dad. He, he emailed her and said, "Hey, send some more money." I mean he kept a credit card, never used it, but he kept a, a credit card. I guess he put some things on the credit card, you know, that we had. But we we got my brother and I like an hour later. I said, "Hey, my brother's eighteen months, my seventeen months, my junior. My boys are seventeen months apart. If you don't believe God works in mysterious ways." Um, so about an hour into our day at Disney, I looked at my brother and I said, "Hey, did you see Daddy's face after he paid for all those tickets?" <laughs> <laughs> my brother said, "Yeah," and he kind of laughed like Rev. I said. He's got nowhere near enough money, and he knows he doesn't. You know what I mean? And, and we're like, if he doesn't have it, we don't have it. I can assure you, assure you with that. And that's, that's just one. I don't know. I mean, inflation sneaks up on you, I guess. You live in Pamplico, and 100 bucks is 100 bucks. You go to Disney, and 100 bucks is $10. And I got to believe he thought three or four grand, you know, at that time would have been plenty of money to do whatever we wanted. If them grandkids want something, I'm getting it for them. Well, I think after that, what was the old saying? E.T. phone home. <laughs> I think E.T. had to phone home and make some other arrangements. Take a break. Back in a few. You know, if you want to go down the road on a Friday morning of things that don't have good answers and don't have precise answers and don't have exact answers and, and people are allowed to freely express their opinions, I do believe um, that there's something about Disney that, that embodies some of the debate we're having about the country in general, the affordability. Um, I mean, I, you know, if I run it for office today, I mean, I, I'd know exactly what I'd say. Um, I'd say things like Walt Disney didn't build Disney World in expectation of only wealthy people being able to go down there, people with credit cards, running up a big credit bill. I mean, the, you know, affordability in our economy is so out of kilter and out of sorts. And I'm not blaming Disney. I and mean, I'm certainly not saying, well, I mean, you know what Disney did? Disney went woke and went broke. I mean, Disney's not broke. I'll assure you with that. Um, they've got a lot of money to operate on. They can lose money for a long time and keep their heads above water. But but I just think in, in, in context, Walt Disney envisioned a theme park that brought excitement and happiness to people of all ages, and they didn't go broke going. They didn't have to hop the farm, so to speak. They didn't have to big a, a big you know hunk of money or a credit card bill, or whatever. I just, I, I don't know when that happened. And we talked a little bit about yesterday, Gamecock football, Clemson football. I don't, I don't know when this economy became so unaffordable. I mean, I, I think I understand some of the, some of the mechanisms that led us there. I've tried to study. I was at lunch yesterday with two good friends of mine, and I tried to explain, because they, they say, hey, man, you keep up with this more than we do. I mean, they're smarter than I am, but I don't think they read as much about this as I do, they're not as obsessed as I am about trying to figure out some of these nuances and and who to blame and and how do we get better and how do we put Humpty Dumpty back together again, so to speak. Um, and it and it really, I mean, I've convinced myself because I don't know that I have a historical understanding of the gold standard. I mean, I understand the theory, a tangible asset, a commodity, a um, a timeless something of value is supporting the the amount of currency we're allowed to put in circulation. I mean, I understand that, but but I didn't live. I don't. I didn't make consequential financial decisions as a ten year old. I mean, I, I just didn't. But quantitative easing, 
I mean, I understand that. I mean, I've tried to understand. I mean, I've, I read the, the, the theory of quantitative easing. I've, I've studied some of the Keynesian economists, some of the modern monetary theorists. Um, I mean, one of my guilty pleasures is Saturday morning waking up, putting a headset on, and watching lectures by professors or, or these folks that work in finance and they give seminars. And I've, over the years, learned who's legitimate, who's not who kind of sees things in a very fair fashion and who doesn't um, foreign policy. I'm kind of into that right now. I'm trying to understand, did we make a mistake or not? I mean, remember yesterday, some of the debate about, I mean, historically we believe it had been led to believe that the biggest foreign policy blunder in recent American history is going to Iraq. Withdrawing from Afghanistan would be horrific. I mean, it was horrible in what we did and the way we left Afghanistan Going to Iraq was a bad blunder. I mean, it cost the Republican Party because they never admitted failure. They never admitted that was a bad decision. And and maybe that's because the military-industrial complex is even more powerful than I think uh, they are. But but I you know I'm I'm reading now about this 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 unipolar moment, this unipolar period. Um, did Russia? Here's a fundamental question: Did Russia at the end of the Cold War? make an overture to the Western world led by America about becoming more accepted. I said yesterday at lunch to my friends, someone listened and said, that's kind of interesting. I don't know. I mean, I, you know, do you trust Vladimir Putin? You better not. I mean, you better not. But is there an honest bone in his body? I mean, does he want what's best for Russia? I mean, can't we kind of sort of agree to that? I, I'll tell you this. I think Vladimir Putin believes both of these. You ready? I think Vladimir Putin's got 150 million people, and he would let every single one of those people die in Ukraine. I believe that. I believe he's that committed to that war. Does he, does he honestly, sincerely believe that history suggests Russia controls that land? I don't know. I mean, he knows that history better, much better than I do, but he looks at it from a nostalgic Mother Russia enthusiast. But did we make, is, is Vladimir Putin honest? But if there's one kind of a, an interesting takeaway to me, Rev, it is Putin suggested that at the fall of the Soviet Union, that they, Russia, reached out to the Western world, American dip, dip, uh, diplomats, about becoming more accepted. We'll never be best friends. We'll never go to the prom together. But was there a chance for Russia to be more accepted into the Western world? And they weren't. Now, now Putin says that Clinton basically gave him somewhat of a caution light. I, I mean, I don't know how it is. Putin didn't say. Clinton said, yes, of course. Let me go back and see. That's kind of a caution light to me. Sit tight. Let me go back and see. Clinton goes back, and Putin insinuated, I know what he did. I mean, he went back and talked to the CIA because I was in the KGB, and the Russian president didn't make a decision without the KGB being involved in it. it is, hey, is this something that we should or should not do? So Putin's insinuating that before Clinton could say yes or no, he went back, talked to his intelligence community. They nixed it. Now I can't do that. And Putin and Russia had to look for another ally. Now it would have been who? Um, Gorbachev at the time? Uh, what was the other guys? I mean, Yeltsin? Yeltsin. Boris Yeltsin came after that. I don't know who it was at that time, but it would have been one or the other. But but when when I mean, if Putin's telling the truth, he hardly ever does, but if he is, and, and nobody, Clinton, I mean, Clinton denied it. 
I mean, as any spokesperson for the Global Clinton Initiative said, Vladimir Putin's interview with Tucker Carlson is a false representation. I wish somebody would ask him. I mean, that, that would be a very fair question. So, so when Russia was given the cold shoulder by the Western world, what do they do? They look for alliances. So you could argue, I mean, if you wanted to be a negative American foreign policy um, kind of a guy, if you want to say Bolton and all those guys screwed it up, you know what you'd say? You'd say the Western world forced Russia into the hands of the Middle East mullah and the Chinese. I mean, they had to find some alliances. They had to find some place to land. Once again, that, that's just kind of an interesting academic study. Take a break. Back in a few. Programming note on this Friday morning, we are off on Monday. President's Day, which is really Jefferson Day, but we'll call it <laughs> President's Day. We're off on Monday, uh, back at it Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. So next week will be one of those Pepsi-Cola of Florence takes Tuesdays uh, to make Fridays. Go. But I think we'll have the best we could do of Wake Up Carolina on Monday at our usual time. It'll be some of the um, some of the very average content rebroadcast one extra day. Probably doesn't deserve it, but it's the best, once again, we can do. Do want to say that at about 7.25 this morning, Congressman Russell Fry will be with us. It'll be a very interesting time to have Russell on the show. The House is deciding whether or not to take up the Ukrainian spending bill, uh, foreign aid bill. We'll talk a little border security and whatever else Russell is talking about and scheduled to call in at 9.05. I want to give Josh a big thumbs up here. And I want to give Wayne Mulling. I think Wayne deserves a shout-out. Wayne was persistent. I told Wayne, I said, Wayne, in politics, and I've told Josh and Rev this, in politics, it gets complicated. I mean, I'll just say that. It gets complicated. Um, Nikki and I got elected together. We, we, we worked on some things together, and then things went south for me. Um, I mean, I have a certain – anyway, it's, it gets complicated. And I'll leave the rest of that unsaid. And I didn't think she'd come on. I mean, I just didn't. And I understand not coming on because there's some history there. And it's not, you know, it's not rainbows and and, uh, and sugar plums. But Nikki agreed to come on at about 9.05. And, and I'll tell you, Nikki's not coming on for Ken. She's not coming on for Josh, not coming on for Wayne Mulling. She's coming on for you, the voters, however many of you there are out there that are still considering her as a legitimate Republican nominee and I wrote an op-ed. I said op-ed. I wrote an opinion piece. I give myself too much credit when I say op-ed. I gave my opinion, and I think Fitz News may have published it, um, that said I was not in Columbia long enough to know if Nikki was a good governor or not. I mean, to be honest with you, when I got run off, I mean, I kind of checked out. I mean, I didn't pay a lot of attention to it, left a kind of bad taste in my mouth, and I went and found something else to do for a brief period of time. Um, and Nikki and I've spoken several times. It's not it's not an everyday occurrence. It's not an every month occurrence by any stretch. And uh, we've not spoken in a pretty good while. I think I made the last time I may have talked to Nikki was when she got appointed the ambassador to the UN. And I congratulated her. And um, but I mean, obviously she went her way. I went I went my way. But Josh and Wayne deserve a lot of credit for um, for convincing her that you are worth it. Not me. You the voters or who she needs to be in contact with. And if you're going to talk to Republican primary voters in the PD, this is about as good a shot as you'll get. Uh, wake up, Carolina. We thank you for putting us on the um, eye, on the radar <laughs> of some of these candidates. So Russell will be with us at 7.30-ish, 7.25-ish, and then scheduled Nikki Haley. Now, I'm going to level with you. 
Josh and Wayne don't know much about this as I do. Presidential campaigns get chaotic. And very often you go to bed believing your day looks one way and it doesn't. I'll give you an example. Let's say the Today Show called Nikki's campaign at 8.30 this morning. And she's got a chance to go on the Today Show and speak to a national audience. She's got to take that chance. I mean, I, I get it. But right now it's about, you know, laser focused on the South Carolina primary. And I can't imagine her spending, you know, 20 minutes any better place than right here speaking to you our voters. Let's go to the phone. Mike in Darlington. Hello, Mike. You're on. Ah, good morning. I tell you, um, I congratulate uh, 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 Wayne and uh, Josh and getting her to come on uh, because I think uh, people would like to hear what she has to say to uh, the people of the PD. But um, that I, I kind of disagree with you that the invasion of Iraq was the worst foreign policy blunder. I think the first, the worst policy plunder was uh, misidentifying the Shah of Iran and uh, helping push him out of power in favor of the mullahs. I think that was that was the start of bad things, and uh, the invasion of Iraq probably wouldn't have happened if the, if uh, we'd had control of uh, Iran or at least had them somewhat uh, slowed down and not quite as expansionist as the mullahs are. But uh, that that was uh, Jimmy Carter's uh, blunder, and it's a sad thing because uh, Jimmy Carter pretty much got his start in the PD when uh, Jen Red endorsed him and convinced him to uh, bring Peanut One down here, and at the time, I knew about that, and uh, from what my sources told me, uh, they, they, were, they were having trouble playing for fuel for that plane, and uh, Jen Ritt told him that uh, he'd get him uh, over a quarter of a million dollars if he'd just stop off here at the PD. Well, I was down there, and I was standing right next to him. And uh, Jen Rep was uh, in, we were in the ballroom there, and it was a really nice ballroom at one of these places you got to go through two gates to get to. And uh, he told him, he told him, uh, look, at, uh, he was treating Carter kind of like a prize pig. He had a, about uh, 300 of the, the movers and shakers of the coastal Carolina uh, down there. And everybody that had, they, these were people that uh, owned the mills, owned the farms, owned the land. And uh, he t- he told them, he, and uh, Carter got ticked off at him. He was just keeping him over there in the alcove, uh, bringing the people up two or three at a time. This $200 a plate luncheon. And uh, he said, uh he he came up there one time. He said, uh, "Mrs. So and So, this is our next president, Jimmy Carter." And uh, Carter just snatched him by the arm. I mean, he grabbed him. I didn't know he could move that fast, but he he stepped right in front of me and grabbed Jen Red and uh, said, "Listen here, uh, you told me you were gonna get me a quarter million dollars, and I I don't I don't see that here. Two hundred dollars a plate for this uh, this luncheon." And he said, and uh, Jim Rett looked at him, looked down at him, holding his arm. And he had a grip on his arm, too. I mean, it, uh, Carter's a fast little guy. And uh, 
Jen Rett's not a huge guy, but he uh, he's a little bit bigger than uh, Carter. He had a grip on him, and Jen Rett looked down, and he said, I'll get you money. I'll get it right now. And uh, he said, and he, he looked down his arm, and Carter let go of him. And uh, he said, get me a, uh, get me a folding chair. Well, uh, aides run over there at the side of the door, and they, got, they picked up one of them wooden uh, folding chairs with the custom embroidery on the cushion. Mike, we got to take seat. a break, my man. Uh, hard break, top <laughs> of the to hour. The point, yeah, please. Back in a few. Three six six one zero nine three seven. Our number takes Mondays to make Fridays. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Breeze. Good morning. You're on. Kid off that off podcast you were talking about. I guess Wednesday and Thursday. The two words that struck me. That was I kept that article because who said it, but the two words were purposeful and intentional. I thought, I, thought, I thought of you when I heard those two words. Well, oddly enough, those two days, you had a lot of stuff going on, and I did too. But I had a Russian. What about class? Two clients that are Russian, one female and one male, their brother and sister. And I had him there kind of listening, and I was asking them questions. He was there trading with me. And I'm telling you, kid, two of the nicest people you'd ever want to meet in your life is the government. There's no way in the world that I would want to have to shoot. Or, and this girl's got two kids from an American, and they're fine people. And the idea of going to war against people like that makes me sick to my stomach. And that being said, I have a Chinese family who owns a restaurant, and we eat out a lot. The finest people you ever want to meet, they still speak Chinese. The youngest one speaks English. But another thing I was going to tell you, what if, though, the whole time we've been worried about the Russian boogeyman, and there's no doubt in my mind that Putin and them reached out. Um, the Russian guy told me, he said, you know, the truth of the matter is your government. He doesn't, he, he's like we are, he doesn't say Americans. Your government pushed us toward the Middle East, and pushed us toward China because they were the only people that would do business with us. We could, you know, it was business. We had no choice. You know, you know what I'm saying? And so uh, we, you know, he goes, we don't necessarily. We, we've always kind of missed suspicion. You know, he implied that he felt like most Russians would rather be have an alliance with America than China. And my position is, it makes more sense. You always always try to make sense. Right now, if you want to know the truth, China's number one, and Russia and America are probably two and three. Wouldn't it make sense for Russia and America, for business reasons only, if you look at it like a business, to try to weaken China financially and militarily to where instead of having China running away from Russia and America, we work together and bring China back down a little bit and then you got three number ones that kind of have that power kind of spread out where no one country dominates the world. But another thing that I've been listening to a lot, and I've been listening to it for years, and I wonder what Russell Fry's take is on this, they keep talking about those EMTs. What would happen if an EMT just basically shot down our electrical grid? Now, kid, you grew up in Papago, I grew up in Lake City. If you know that there's a bomb that they can blow up in the atmosphere that will basically knock out every computer in America, knock out all of the power and everything else, why 
solely on computers, just like when that pipeline was was uh, leaking, you know, blowing all that oil out. Nobody knew how to turn the damn thing off manually. You know, before when we were worried about nuclear explosions, the, the power grid, the cars, our military equipment, I mean, hell, if you don't have a computer, we can't fly a plane, we can't run a boat, we can't run a tank, can't even run your damn cars, you can't run your... Most people don't even have a landline. So I would know what Russell Pride says about what is our... Do we have a plan in case that happens? I mean, the water that you get every day at Clark's is coming through a damn computer. It ain't coming through a spigot that you turn on like it ought to be. In other words, there ought to be a plan, a backup plan, if that happens, to where we'll still be able to have communication, we'll still be able to have electricity, and we'll still be able to run the Army. Yeah, because if not, we're, you know, how can we be that stupid unless we're being purposeful and intentional? Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. Well, I mean, that, and, and I thought of Breeze when I heard him say him say that. Let's kind of play that out of the other side. Let, let's think about this. If America had a choice to ally itself with Eastern Europe, the Middle East, or China, what makes the most sense? 843-661-0937. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. The band had a song they played at Woodstock called The Weight. It's one of the classic rock anthems. Rev's not very fond of it, but he gives it some credit for being played at Woodstock. Oh, yeah. Which is this, you know, kind of the counterculture revolution began with um, acid-induced naked women dancing on the hoods of Volkswagens. But there's a line, take a load off Fanny. Well, Fanny took a load off yesterday and explained... <laughs> What she had been doing and what Fonny's trying to do, guys, is convince the public that she didn't misuse public funds. Yeah, they went to the Caribbean. Yeah, they went to the Napa Valley. Yeah, they had sex before. Uh, He hired Nathan Wade, who doesn't litigate RICO, but it's a RICO case. But but I didn't misuse public funds because I kept cash left over from my campaign. And that's how I reimbursed old Bo as we say in the country. Uh, anyway, somebody's going to give you a lot more sophisticated explanation, I'm sure, than I have, is Director of Policy and Governmental Affairs for American Principles Project. He is also a GOP strategist, John Schweppe. John, good morning. How are you? Good morning. So what do we make of what Fonny had to say <laughs> yesterday? I, I will tell you, this is probably the craziest thing I've ever seen in a courtroom. <laughs> Just unbelievable. You know, they... If you ever talk to a lawyer, if you ever get in trouble, guys, <laughs> the first thing they'll tell you is shut up. <laughs> they'll say, you know, answer the questions. Yes, no, I'm not sure. And Fannie Willis went out there and basically went on a rant and, you know, said all sorts of things, implicated herself in all sorts of ways. And, you know, I'll tell you, you know, sometimes you see these, these Soros DAs and, you see, you know, the deep state going after Trump, and you think, man, these people are evil. And I think the best thing we have going for us is that they are also extremely stupid. <laughs> John, that, but, that's, that's but, but John, the here. one thing, and I'm a good old boy. I'm going to make no bones about that. I'm a former politician. I'm a good old boy. I'm a backslapper and all that good stuff. But it seems to me that she exuded a certain entitlement and, 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 and kind of knew the lay of the land. I'm in hot Atlanta. You don't mess with me in hot Atlanta. What, what, am I on to something there? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the, the, the stunning thing here is she admitted 
you know, as as you mentioned, she she had campaign cash that she held, you know, in cash in her home. You know, she made six hundred thousand dollars in payments to her lovers or to her lover in cash, right? Like, I mean, there's just so many insane wrinkles to this case. And again, you know, she just came out here and just said it all. And so you look at this through the broader lens. I mean, obviously, this is a very corrupt person. But then, you know, this is the person who's trying to uphold democracy and and, uh, save us from Donald Trump, who's the real problem here. She has absolutely no credibility whatsoever after this. And, and, you know, I I don't see how they can go forward with anything against Donald Trump. But as a GOP strategist, how do you play this? I mean, if you're giving President Trump or former President Trump advice, how do you politically advantage yourself on this? Well, I think, you know, number one, you go after her credibility, right? I mean, at this point, you know, this is somebody who uh, the Democrats were – and they still are, by the way uh, – trying to, you know, uphold as, you know, the beacon of, of democracy and trying to, uh, you know – when you're a prosecutor like this, you know, you have to have um, – you have to have the law on your side. You have to be uh, representing law and order and obviously showing how corrupt she is, showing how – uh, you know, she has no regard for that, right? Um, I think it just invalidates what she's doing, and 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 certainly, you know, a jury, judge, you know, they're all going to see it that way. John, the redeeming quality of Donald Trump. I mean, he's got some redeeming qualities, some problematic qualities. I mean, you're a GOP strategist. You've seen the best and worst of the of the goods and bads of candidates. One, and and I've been fairly consistent in my belief. I think one of the greatest qualities of Donald Trump, and whether it's intentional or not. Everything turns into a street fight. And when it's a street fight, it's very much to his advantage. It looks to me like all of a sudden the Georgia case resembles a street fight, and he wins. I think that's a really good point, and it's true. Look, the, the reality is that for them to uh, you know, win this, in the, especially in the court of public opinion, you know, they have to basically show themselves to be above the, you know where he is that they're holier than he is and and that's just not what's happening here and you know you you're getting in the mud with with donald trump it's not going to work well for you well explain john thank you for your time sir have a great um weekend thank you that's kind of a, a, a rather professional um <laughs> perspective on what happened yesterday but at the end of the day i mean here's where here's i mean watch the excerpts or not i mean Fonnie willis appeared to be very entitled very racially motivated to get someone who, I mean, she basically says in some of her rants, you know, don't put me on trial, put him on trial. Those are the people on trial. They tried to steal an election. She is trying her best to not be found guilty of misusing public funds. That's the the legal peril. There's no law against being crazy and out of control. I mean, there's no law that says you can't be a B-I-T-C-H. There's no law that says you can't be incompetent. There's no law that says you can't be racially motivated. I mean, there's some laws that that leads into, but there's a law that says you can't misuse public funds. And so so her story is, now, now once again, we know they lied on the front end. She and Obo both lied saying they never had a relationship prior to him being hired as one of the special prosecutors. They've admitted now that wasn't true. But they, they had sexual relations uh, before he was hired. Um, but what, what Willis is arguing is, 
Yeah, we paid him $640,000 of Georgia taxpayer dollars trying to put Donald Trump in jail. Yes, it's true that he's never tried many RICO cases, and this is a RICO case. And it is true that together we've gone on vacations, some luxurious vacations to Napa Valley and the Caribbean multiple times. But every time he put it on his credit card, because they've got records that showed he put it on his credit card, I think $2,700 to Napa Valley charged to his credit card. But when he did it, I reimbursed him. Now, I don't have any bank records of my reimbursing because I kept cash in my house that I had left over from my campaign, and he would kind of give me an IOU, and I would pay him my share of the trip. Now, now I said this morning, and I'll say again, if I mean, there is no doubt America's in decline. I don't know the trajectory of that decline. I don't think there's a, a, a declining index that, that I can truly have faith in. But if, if more than 5% of Americans believe her story, we're in dramatic freefall. I mean, we are Tom Petty freefalling, if that's the case. <laughs> I mean, I get the hackish nature of politics. I mean, I get you kind of, you know, you get paid to say this, you get paid to say that. But nobody with an IQ over 75 can honestly believe that she's an honest broker. You just can't. I mean, she is a political hack. She ran for office saying, give me a chance and I'll go after Trump. She's done that. But once again, she's found herself in the mud with Donald Trump. And Donald Trump is as good a political mud wrestler as I've ever seen. And I didn't say wrestler. I said wrestler. He is as good a political mud wrestler as there's ever been in the history of American politics. So all of a sudden, the lady that goes after Trump finds herself on a witness stand answering questions in the most bizarre fashion imaginable. I mean, the disrespectful way she answered it, her racial overtone was obvious to me. Um, I mean, racism can cut both ways. I'm sorry, it can. Um, but, but more than that, I think her defending that she didn't misuse public funds is just out there. I mean, it's totally, yeah, we paid him $640,000. Yeah, he was my lover before we hired him. Yeah, he's never tried RICO cases, but I think he's a good RICO lawyer. Yeah, we went on trips. Yes, he put it on his credit card. But I didn't personally benefit from any of those trips because I had campaign cash in my house, and I took cash and reimbursed him for my part of whatever the trip cost. If you have TDS... To that degree, I'd suggest you're a threat to society. I'm thinking of a few people in particular. If your TDS is that extreme, <laughs> you need to get not dock-in-the-box care. You need to be admitted into triage, emergency care, and, and full-fledged detox because you are off your rocker if you think that is legitimately a way to go after a former American president or anybody for that regard, forget former American president to go after anybody with the lunacy that you're in a position of power to do that. You're a DA. That's the scary part of all this. You couldn't have written this story. If you said, Hey, come up with a bizarre, crazy story and let's write this fiction and put it out there that nobody would ever believe that would could be the the only thing more bizarre than me telling this story with my Southern accent is the words actually coming out of her mouth (laughs) and his. I mean, I think one of the questions, so Mr. Wade, did she go to an ATM and get the cash that she reimbursed you with? 
And he said, she kept it in the house. She kept it in the house. Wow. He forgot the extra ingredient. Have you seen the video when she was being interviewed, I guess when she was running for DA, where they asked her about, you know, I guess her opponent, she was talking about, you need to have a DA that hasn't slept with their subordinate. <laughs> well, let's find one then. Right. We might get a chance to find one. I mean, just uh, bizarre. Not, not just a subordinate. A subordinate, they got the better deal. I think they hired three lawyers. One got 200 bucks an hour. One got like 220 an hour. One got 300 an hour. Take a wild guess who got 300 an hour. <laughs> oh, Bo. Let's go to the phone. <laughs> oh, Bo. William and McCall. Hi, you're on the air. How you do, Dave? Ken. Uh, I heard earlier y'all going to have Mr. Fry on and Nikki Haley. And uh, I heard Nikki uh, on one of her campaign speaks talk about gun control. Well, if they so interested in gun control with all these kids that just got shot in Kansas City, why don't they push a law that if you get locked up for shooting somebody with a gun, you cut their damn hand off? That's how you stop all this shit. You can't go take everybody's gun, but the ones that commit crimes, you can cut their damn hand off, and it's the end of it. Now, if they got the balls to do that, Russell Fry or Nikki Hadley got the balls to bring up a law that if you commit a crime with a gun, you cut your hand off. Thank you, William. Thank you, William. Appreciate that. 843-661-0937. Let me ask a question. Is shooting an innocent person gun violence? Yeah. I mean, it's a violent act perpetrated by someone with a firearm. Is if someone breaks into your home and has the intent to hurt, harm, kill you and your family, and you shoot them dead in the confines of your own residence, is that gun violence? I mean, I think we need to define what gun violence is. I mean, I, I, I watched Twitter yesterday and the day before, and it's obvious to me in moments like this, the sports media need to continue concentrating on the fun and games department. Stop gun violence. F the gun. Stop gun violence. F the gun. Stop gun violence. What does that stop gun violence? What does that mean? When you want to stop gun violence, do you want to stop the right of someone sleeping in their bed, hearing a noise at the window, someone breaking into their home, they've got a handgun in the nightstand beside their bed, so, so is gun violence shooting that criminal dead or is that stopping a crime? I mean, it's gun violence by their definition, but to me it's stopping a crime. It's protecting you and your family. The absurdity of the left, and I think most reasonable people believe there did be some degree of restriction on gun ownership, some regulating of gun ownership. It's just bizarre to me that stop the gun violence. Okay, stop the gun violence. What does that mean? Do you want to stop that person being able to reach into that nightstand and shoot someone coming into their home? Because that's gun violence, right? Stick to the fun and game. Sports media, do me a favor. Stick to the fun. and You're not real good at that, but you're much better at that than you are, and and God bless Clay Travis. I want to say this. Travis is kind of, um, I mean, he's a sports guy, and he's a, a conservative commentator now, and Travis is just laid in to that business. I mean, he's laid, and he's, once again, one of them. And, I, I you know, is Clay a, a true convert? I don't know. Is he an opportunist? Guess what? We all are. I mean, we all are. He's been a Democrat for a large share of his life. Has he seen the light, or is he ringing the cash register? Probably a little of both. Take a break. Back in a few. 
843-661-0937. Text Mondays to make Fridays. We are waiting on the call from Congressman Russell Fry. Normally happens at about between 725 and 730. So um, we'll go to the phone and take a listener's call before we do that. Rajan in Darlington. Hi, Rajan, you're on. Good morning. Good morning, gentlemen. Ken, uh, I got a question for you. Um, am I, did I hear correct that she said she took the money out of campaign donations that were left over? She said that. She had money left over from her campaign in her home. In cash. In cash. And when when they went on a trip and he put it on his credit card, she gave him half the money back from campaign cash he had left over in her house. Is she related to the to the uh, senator? Is they, they close friends to the senator to, uh, up in uh, New Jersey? Menendez. 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 I mean, you know, one of those I mean, guys yeah. kept it in his freezer. I think. Remember the guy that kept yeah, it in his in his freezer. Bars. I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, he had on, cold cash. Cash. You got cash. That that. How do you just? How do you make a disclosure about your cash? Finance. Uh, campaign financial disclosure about cash. See, when you say financial I like, disclosure, I run out of the room. So, so I, I, <laughs> I, I, I'm probably not the best one to ask how to financially disclose campaign contributions. Uh, Rujan, I've got a history there, but none of mine involved um, going after an American president. No, and, and Rujan, I think you'll agree with me. It's it's okay to chuckle about that because it is a, kind of a crazy story. But the reality is she is a prosecutor with the legal authority to go after an American president, and that's what she's choosing to do. And that's just scare the bejesus out of all of us, Rujan. But, she, but, but here's the thing. She's a black woman. She can get away with it. Wow. You can say that. I can't. And you know that. Why you not? can say that, and I can't. Look, the sister, she, she's suffering from angry black woman syndrome. That's all there is to, to it. On top of that, she's got pump derangement syndrome. And, and oh, my gosh, we got a problem in Atlanta. This this They, this, they need to, to just go ahead and grab her by the neck and escort her on out, get a new prosecutor. I don't care what color they are, but this is a total embarrassment to, to all of Atlanta. Matter of fact, it's a total embarrassment to all black prosecutors, all black, you know, public defenders, all black lawyers in, 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 in general, because she's showing what a black lawyer is going to do. And that's, that's crazy. Thank you, Rujan. Appreciate it. 843-661-0937 is our number. Um, but it's obvious there's a sense of entitlement that she exudes. I mean, she's laid back in the chair and, and I mean, I, I'm, I'm a good old boy, so I think I can say this and get away with it. I mean, there's a certain, I mean, I was in a, I was in a situation in my business life once and I had a partner, probably wish he hadn't said it, but he got the point across loud and clear. There was a threat of litigation. I mean, that they weren't happy with us. We weren't happy with them. The business deal didn't go their way. The business deal didn't go our way. Um, there was some, some arguing about things at the end. It, it was a pretty substantial deal. And, and I'm convinced now that about every deal north of X number of dollars goes to the court at the end. you kind of got lawyer friends to say, hey, the project costs this much? Yeah, you'll end up court. I mean, you guys will argue over something something at the end. But I remember one of my buddies in one of our, you know, disagreeable conversations toward the end, I remember when they, they started talking about venue. You know, where will the case be held if it indeed ends up in court? And we knew the answer. I mean, we knew it would be held here. And one of my buddies, and he did it to intimidate. I mean, he did it his gamesmanship. He did it to try and encourage, hey, let's settle this thing and not go to court. The other side was willing to go to court. We're willing to go to the court. But where's the trial? 
It's in our backyard. And my good friend, <laughs> he made a noise like this. You ready? You know what that smells like? Home. <laughs> and I bet that other team got in the car and said, hey, he's right. I mean, you know, there's home cooking. And it looked to me like she knew she was in hot Atlanta. And nobody was going to care what. I mean, I, I saw African-American lawyers on Twitter. I know two. And they were defending. I mean, you know, Fonny's doing great. Fonny's doing excellent. Well, I mean, I, I don't know how you get that. I mean, if you're a serious lawyer, white, black, red, green, yellow, Democrat, Republican, you've got to be embarrassed at one of your own. And, and I'm talking about a, uh, an elected prosecutor saying publicly, some of the things that Fonnie Willis said, it was bizarre to me. And, but, but, but once again, her genuine concern, it's not the optic. It's not whether she is a, a, a B-I-T-C-H or whether she's racist or whether she's incompetent. It's whether she misused public funds. And her out is when we went on trips and used his money, I reimbursed him with cash that I had that was left over from my campaign account. That's just, you know, that that's a an unreal explanation, but it may legally give her cover for misusing, you know, public funds. I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. I don't know how, you know, you slice and dice that. But that's her excuse, and that's not a New York Times report. I mean, that's out of her own mouth on a witness stand. Yes, we lied on our um, initial report. We lied and said we didn't have sex until after we got, after I hired him. Ah, okay, we lied. We, we were embarrassed. We Kept it a secret. We don't want anybody to know. But once, you know, once we came clean, everything else is on the is on the up and up. And here's the scary part, guys. A percentage of Americans believe her. A percentage of Americans are celebrating Fonnie Willis today because they have Trump derangement syndrome, and she's kind of the person willing to whatever measure go after Donald Trump. That's the scary part here. It's not incompetence. It's not political gamesmanship. It's not partisan. It's just the fact that somebody with that authority or so negligent in being responsible with that authority. Congressman Russell Fry is with us. Good morning, sir. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you, sir? This sitting on the rundown list, but what did you make of it? Did you see any of it? And what do you make of Fonnie Willis's appearance yesterday in Georgia? Well, we had you know, it was a pretty busy week up here, but I, I will say, and I didn't watch it, I kind of caught the, the cliff notes and the highlights, but I'll tell you, I was just kind of amazed. I mean, it, it was like a level of arrogance. And, and I think the frustration that I have with her uh, and with people in positions of power like her is that, that is, it's like they're doing us a favor by even existing and that we should just roll over. I, I just I don't buy the logic that, like, you take cash out of your campaign account. I mean, you have – I mean, you have gone, like – above and beyond to like just really destroy a man's life, um, meaning leveling, leveling these charges against President Trump, you've kind of made it your mission. Um, and, and this stuff comes out, and I just, I just think it gets worse for her right now, Ken. I, I just don't – I don't think that most of the American people – maybe the left celebrates what she said yesterday, but, but most people look at this and go, gosh, is, is, like, is this the clown show that's, that's um, running the country or that is – is this the clown show that's prosecuting the former president? I, I just don't think it ends well for her. And yesterday was not a good step forward. Okay, but you are dealing with those that run the country. And this week, the House decided to, for the second time, attempt, this time successfully, impeach Secretary Mayorkas. Why exactly, Russell, did you feel 
the impeachment was appropriate? Well, I think if you look at the intent of the framers, all right, and, and when they discussed impeachment and you go back and you look at kind of when they brought up impeachment and you look at old English common law, it is really important um, that you don't use impeachment just because you disagree. Like pretty much all the cabinet secretaries that exist today, um, you and I disagree with. So you don't impeach them for political purposes or for political reasons. But when you have a man who has lied to Congress, who has failed to do his uh, obligation to enforce the law multiple times, um, has failed to secure the border, has failed to uphold the Constitution, the, con- the Constitution gives you a remedy, and that's impeachment. And I think that's a really in- important step, and I think the, the Homeland Security Committee did a phenomenal job of kind of laying out the case. Um, and we have to act. I mean, this is the most open border we've ever had. It's the most dangerous, disastrous border that we've ever had. He won't fix it. He has proven time and time again that it's not a matter of aptitude to fix. He just won't. And so it's time to remove him from that post. Um, When there are people who are uh, committing maladministration, as they call it, get rid of them. And that's what we tried to do this week. Russell, how many open border members of Congress are there? Is that a pervasive mindset in Washington? I think it's like, I think it's most of the Democrat Party. In fact, all of them. I mean, they just, they will not, you know, the. the Did we lose Russell? Mm. Says he's still connected, but Mm we must have. Yeah, we lost him. Let's take a break, Josh. Let's do this. Take a break. See if we can get back on the phone and finish the conversation. Apologize to our listeners. Um. The trouble is not in our set. We'll take a break. Back in a few. Mondays to make Fridays, F-R-Y-D-A-Y today. We apologize for the technical snafu we just experienced, but we have Congressman Russell Fry back on the phone. Congressman, are you there? I'm here. Okay, you guys gave us a lot to talk about this week. But one of the most interesting (laughs) issues that I felt, and we really covered and discussed it, was the Her Special Counsel report that basically said Joe Biden committed crimes but we don't think he's competent enough to stand trial. Therefore, there will be no criminal charges. Um, I think there's been talk of a cognitive test. Russell, it's obvious to me that he is a man very diminished. He has a a good moment or two and then two or three really, really, really bad days. As a member of Congress, how concerned are you with the Hur report, whether he should take a cognitive test, and and kind of what your responsibility is in all this. Well, I, I think one the, the report confirmed what we the American people can plainly see, uh, except it's now in writing. And uh, people um, people with any intelligence, with any aptitude, just to look at something, uh, can see it for what it is. It speaks for itself. Um, so the the report like is is com- very concerning because you have a prosecute. Well, uh, two problems with it. One, you have the issue itself, which is his competency. And it just flatly says it like he he's just, you know, basically a nice old man that might come across that way to a jury. And so therefore, we're not going to prosecute. That's the problem. Right. And that's the other side of this coin is we're not going to prosecute him um, for the same thing, mind you, that they're going after Trump for, like with the vengeance of a thousand sons. So we're not going to prosecute him because he's just a nice guy. But Trump, like we're going to go after you. I just I like I. It infuriates me that that is even 
happening right now. And that's what we want to when we talk about the two-tiered system of justice, this is the case in point. So when when her appears before Congress, what is I mean what is the hope? What what do you, I mean is it to make public? Do you think the transcript should be released public? The, the it, should her I mean kind of kind of walk me through what you think the public deserves to know about what's in that special counsel report. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, when, when he comes in, I think it's really important to understand, like, the conversations that he had with President uh, Biden and what that looked like um, and the evidence that was revealed at the time and the decision making on whether to prosecute or to not, in this case, not. And so I think it's really that's really important. And and, you know, look, I mean, there was an interview. We know that there was a transcript um, and we think that the American people should see it. Uh, and so. Um, that that'll be kind of I would imagine the focus of of the committee. Um, last two things I want to touch base with you, Congressman Russell Fry, with us um, talking about the week that was very busy week. Um, Tony Bobolinsky was a business partner of Hunter Biden, has intimate knowledge of the affairs of the Biden. I mean, I'll call it you uh, crime family. I mean, it seems to be uh, very entailed, very complicated. You got uh, a lot of different LLCs and bank accounts and whatnot. Did Bob Alinsky, because I think he sat for a transcribed hearing with the oversight, did. Did, did Bob Alinsky reveal anything to you guys that we didn't already suspect or know? I think most of the stuff you, you knew or assumed could be true, right? What Bob Alinsky confirmed uh, was that uh, he was in business with the Bidens, um, that, the, that Biden was the brand uh, in which they sold access around the world uh, or the perception of access. And that, uh, again, Tony was like, I mean, he was a business partner. He was part of the part of the shop here. And that Joe Biden was very much aware of and involved in Hunter Biden's business. I mean, and so, um, uh, you know, the, the intent was always to give him plausible deniability. Uh, Bob Walensky talked about that in his transcribed interview. And that, you know, so that, that Biden could walk away and say, oh, well, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't listed on the LLC or I wasn't whatever. But he had, I mean, he was in meetings. He did these things. I mean, uh, around the time that CEFC, which is the Chinese energy company, paid Hunter Biden three million bucks, Joe Biden met with them, right? I mean, he was in the meeting with the company. Um, they sold the access. That was always the plan. And so Bob Linsky's testimony was eight hours, um, a lot of, a lot of uh uh, material there. The transcript will be huge when they finally print it, um, but it was very revealing. But Russell, is there any legal liability? I understand it's damaging politically. There's a lot of questions we have. At the end of the day, you're an attorney. I'm not congressman. It, what, what is the potential legal liability for the Biden family? Well, part of that's if DOJ does anything, right? I mean, we, I don't, I don't control DOJ. Um, they can choose to charge or not, which is. Uh, in this case, um, unfortunate because there are issues. I mean, David Weiss probably would have never let Hunter Biden um, would have never charged him had House Republicans not been like so um, adamant about the evidence that's out there. But I will say this: I think it's really important. Look, impeachment inquiry is, is a serious thing. The House has authorized it, and if in cases of bribery, it's right there in the Constitution. And so, you know, we're going to do our job uh, to fulfill our our oath. We're going to go through the evidence and look at it. Um, and this kind of goes toward that. I think we've got, um, um, uh, Joe Biden's brother coming in soon and, and then Hunter at the end of the month. So we're going to keep doing our work 
and revealing this to the American people. Congressman, when I when I was Lieutenant Governor, he spent some time in Columbia. One one of the uh, one of the things I saw a lot of senators do take a moment of personal privilege. I want to take a moment of personal privilege and, and get you on the record, if you don't mind. I am offended as an American that when we created standalone bills, we separated border security from Ukrainian funded foreign policy funding, and the U.S. Senate decided to make Ukrainian funding more important than border security. I am a boomer. I have historically been a neoconservative. I'd like to believe I'm a convert. I can't stop being a boomer, but I'm no longer a neocon. I'm no longer a believer that the priority of Washington should be to cons- be concerned with, you know, a borders that we don't have a general interest in rather than our own. I'd like to believe the House will not support the Senate Ukrainian funding bill until they get something real on border security. Am I too optimistic? Um, maybe, right? I mean, uh, I mean, you're one member. I know you can't speak for the body, but but where kind of is, where do you believe the body is as we speak? I, I think, I think the body is incredibly frustrated with the lack of transparency of this administration on Ukraine. Well, and just in general, but on Ukraine here. And you're seeing a very growing sentiment um, that we are spending money protecting other people's borders while also not protecting ours. To your point, I mean, you're, you, you hit it spot on. Um, how that translates into actual votes, I don't know. Um, you know, there have been opportunities uh, in Congress for people to, to show that, that they want some real transparency for, from this administration on our Ukraine policy before we spend another dollar. We want to focus on our border before we spend another dollar in Ukraine. Um, and uh, so there, there have been votes. Uh, I would say uh, it's probably half the Republican conference, the other half votes for it, uh, and most of the Dems vote for it. And that's kind of how the breakdown goes. But there is a very big growing sentiment that, like, dang it, like, what are we doing? We have a country. The border is not a meaningless line in the sand. Uh, so let's get the dang job done and focus on our own people for a minute. Well said. Thank you, Congressman. Appreciate your time today. Have a great weekend, sir. You too. Let's go to the phone. Someone else is there. Sam in Cross Hill. Good morning, Sam. Thanks for holding on. Yeah, sure. Good morning. Um, uh, first off, I, I, I just want to mention, Ken, there was a sporting event last night that you could have talked about. So it kind of took me aback when you said there was no sports to talk about with the, the duels last night. A lot of good race cars got tore up in the second duel. I don't know if you got to see that. But I did. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, anyway, um, yesterday after uh, your show went off, I usually flick the TV on to Fox, and I got sucked into that uh, court ca- uh, fanny uh, situation yesterday, early morning, and it, it just kept me uh, locked in until uh, the thing went off, basically. But, you know, it went on through the day, and uh, it got to the point where they were just trying to discuss whether or not they were going to be able to call Fanny, uh, and and all of a sudden here she comes, and boy did it become great television at that particular point in time. But uh, anyway, I want to clear some some things that I did not hear. I did not ever hear her say that she used campaign funds. What I heard her say was her father had always taught her to maintain a big hoard of cash, at least six months worth of cash, and throughout her life she always tried to keep some of that uh, money. And so uh, uh, I never heard that, so I must, might have stepped away or dozed off or something. And uh, your reporter that called in said that he paid her six, she paid him 600000 in cash. That wasn't so. The problem is 
that he was getting he was a contract worker so they were using the money you know from the from taxpayers to pay him you know through their system there was no cash for the 600,000 what she was what she's claiming is that she basically reimbursed him for these extravagant trips that she went on because she's not going to let a man take care of her uh her, her affairs she's a very private personal proud woman she said and um I think her problem is that one of the problems she's got several there is she she on that report that she's supposed to fill out she was supposed to report if she got gifts from a prohibited party, and uh, he w he became a prohibited party. He was never her employee, but he was a contract uh, uh, agent, I suppose, whatever you want to call it. But she did not report these 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 trips and things, and she's saying that she was reimbursing for those things and. Those and she, that's really weren't those weren't gifts per se. Well, I, I, but I what she's trying that. to do, Sam, is she's trying to wiggle off the hook on misuse of public funds. I mean, that, oh, you know. I yeah, I understand that, and there was a lot of wiggling going on. And I got to tell you, Ken, that that judge, uh, he he was he was he she he gave her great uh, leeway to sit there and say the things that she well i mean it's hot lamb i mean I'll, I'll just leave it there it's hot lamb it's home cooking you know that as well as i do some won't say it i will it's hot lana i think the um thank you sam appreciate it i think the one thing we're not talking about i swear i'm not a um i'm not a, a fashion expert but i think her dress was on backwards i think the zipper goes in the back <laughs> take a break back in a few <laughs> 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. John is on the line calling from Argentina. John's on the Appalachian Trail. John's not in Argentina. It's an inversion yeah, of our prove former it, prove governor. It. Hey, John. Yeah, yeah. I learned that from Mark Sanford, so <laughs> take that for what it's worth. Uh, just wanted to comment on a couple of callers. Uh, first of all, Rujan, he nailed it. Um I lived in Atlanta back in 1970, and um, black folks ran Fulton County back then. And, of course, I, I imagine it's way more uh, pronounced now. And if anybody's ever been through the Atlanta airport, you know that there's nobody better at ordering white folks around than black women. And they run that airport. It's the busiest airport in the world, and they do a great job. I, I absolutely take my hat off to them. But that's Fulton County. Uh, they run it, and you couldn't say it, but Rujan did. Uh, as far as Sam called, um, I agree with him. I only called the last uh, hour or so of her testimony, but I did not hear anything about campaign cash. She talked about keeping a nest egg according to what her father had told her. Um, but I don't think she's crazy enough to get up on the stand and admit to a felony. I think in federal elections, you're allowed to do anything you want with campaign funds that are left over. Now, I don't know about Georgia, but like I said, I don't think she would admit it to a felony on the stand. She, she's not that crazy. Now, as far as the re – you still there? Yeah, we're yeah. here. Mm -hmm. oh, okay, sorry. I got a, I'm on the Wi-Fi calling here. I don't think she reimbursed him. The, tri the trips were him reimbursing her for the sweet job. I don't think there was any reimbursement. So, but but it gives her the out on misusing public funds. That's her. 
That's her legal peril. Did she or did she not misuse public funds? So she's covering, there's a lot of CYA going on in regards to that. Oh, absolutely. Thank you, sir. But Appreciate the call. Like, well, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry. I thought you were finished. Continue. Yeah, but like I said, I don't think it uh, you know, the campaign stuff is probably not a felony there. That, she wouldn't get up and admit that. That was just a cover story. Thank you. Appreciate yeah. the call. I want, I want to confirm that because I saw two media reports this morning yeah, so that said she said she used campaign funds. I didn't watch every second. I mean, I watched some. had two people text me. Are you watching this craziness? At the time, we were doing a podcast, so I couldn't. But I did watch a good bit of it last night, and, um, and I saw two media reports, campaign cash. We'll confirm uh, that. Take a break. Back in a few. I can tell you what we better do, Rev. Uh-huh. You better find a new producer. Because <laughs> Josh is lobbying for a job at the state house. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure of that. So. As much, excuse my friend, I got to say it this way. You ready? As much ass as Josh is kissing this hour, <laughs> theme songs, yeah. you know, just propping up elected. They don't need any propping up. I'll assure you, they have plenty of confidence in themselves. So, Rev, you better start scouring the countryside for someone to take Josh's place because he's about to get him a big highfalutin job. <laughs> In, uh, in Columbia. See, I think he's just producing. It's the show. Okay, it's, it's the show. It's, the, it's, it's the all show. about showbiz. We're right? all public servants here, yeah. right? I mean, we're right. all servants. Yes, when servant that line the item budget says Josh, <laughs> the Josh fund and the budget. <laughs> it's coming. Like, okay. It's coming. You may yeah. not see it yet, but it, oh, it, it'll that, be there sure. before long. Uh, Jay Jordan's not here. Representative Lowe, Senator Rick and Ba are both here. Phones are open, 843-661-0937. As crazy as this sounds, I think these guys have grown to really enjoy phone calls. The, the spontaneous nature of it, the unpredictability of it, um, and I and I and I'm saying it again, and I'm not I'm not captain of either fan club, but I think you are lucky to have elected officials come on every single Friday and meet you where you are. I mean, I just think there there needs to be more of that. We've dealt with candidates who want to know what the questions are, how long is the interview going to be. Philip, Jay, and Mike sit down every Friday morning, and we just kind of have at it. And I think you are fortunate as voters to have two today, mostly. Um, three willing to do that. So, Mike, I'll start with you. Um, the confusion around open carry, constitutional carry. Um, I mean, kind of, kind of help us better understand because you have been targeted. Um, Philip has been targeted. He's kind of an old hand at being targeted. You'd be a new hand at getting. <laughs> Jay has been targeted. But, but exactly what is the misunderstanding if there's one? about uh, open carry, constitutional carry, and the Second Amendment? Yeah, great question. It's it's funny being targeted when every Republican senator, with the exception of one low country in a very, very purple district, 29 of the 30 Republican senators, including the bill's primary sponsor, as you know, Senator Shane Martin, uh, every one of us got targeted with this mass texting hit campaign about how we gutted constitutional carry. And I've been so grateful for the the calls we've received in the emails, people saying, well, you're one of the most pro-Second Amendment senator. What what happened? And I was like, thank you for asking. Let me explain real quickly. House sends to the Senate a constitutional carry bill. It comes down to math. The Senate doesn't have enough votes to pass the House version. We had five senators initially, then it went down to three senators who said, you know what, I can't live with this. It's, it's too liberal of a bill for the constitutional carry. And we had a meeting. We said, all right, what is it you want? Well, we're not going to insist on training. That's not constitutional, train, constitutional carry if we insist or mandate training. And they said, well, is there a way that we could incentivize training and offer it to people? So 
we had a large meeting in our caucus, and we determined with the amendment that they would need in order for them to give us enough votes to pass constitutional carry in its truest, purest sense, is that if you break the law, a gun law, and let's suppose you go into your kid's school with a gun and you're, you're sentenced to 30 days. If you didn't take the training and you say, well, I didn't know any better. I didn't take any training. I didn't know I couldn't take a gun in there. Instead of 30 days, you get 60 days. So if you take the training and you at least have the knowledge to know where you can carry a gun or not, you only are subject to the base penalty. So there's no mandate. There's no requirement. It's an offer if you want the training. And then that gave us enough votes to pass constitutional carry. That's why the governor endorsed our version of it and said, all you're doing is criminal or penalizing those who break the law. That's why the NRA endorsed our version because their point was you got constitutional carry. That's what we've asked for. That's what people ask for. So you've been able to pass it. So we then took our version, sent it to the House. The House, I believe the phrase is non-concurred. They sent it back to us. We non-concurred with what they wanted again. So it's going to conference committee now, three senators, three House members to hash it out. But when I've been able to explain that to folks and, and they said, well, let me get this straight. We have constitutional carry. There's no required training. The amendment only deals with those who break the law and the governor and the NRA support it. Well, that's there's no story there. That's not true within the text. It has been so grateful to hear from people. Philip? Well, the Senate lives in a different world than we do in the House. And my friend, first of all, my friend Mike right here is a strong advocate, constitutional carry, law enforcement, all that. So I don't say any of this against anything against Mike. The House passed what is called a clean constitutional carry bill. It went to the Senate. The Senate couldn't get the votes, from what I understood, to quite get there. So they had to tweak some things a little bit to get some people to come on. There's two gun groups, essentially. There's a gun rights group and the NRA. They both kind of want the same thing, but but when the House sent the what we would consider the perfect clean version over there and it got changed, the, the, the question was, do we take what the Senate sent back or do we insist on the clean version? So we insisted on the clean version and hope that the Senate will come back to that maybe pressure builds and those two or three that we're having difficulty with will cave in and help the rest of them 24 or so of them that that were strong and, and mike's an absolute strong you know supporter of it so there's no mike and i aren't arguing about it we but the I two was, bodies are arguing and you're, you're caught in the middle of a senate and and house and, argument. and we could have taken the senate version and got it got constitutional carry with some caveats, and those those caveats were making the gun rights people mad, not necessarily the NRA. The NRA said, "Look, take it or, or leave it. You better take it." You know, and we went back and forth and closed doors trying to decide what to do. And I think we sent it back to get a clean version, and I, I'm afraid we're going to end up with nothing because I don't know that after the sign up date for elections that. All senators are going to be is worried about this bill, and it could help or it could hurt, uh, depending on who gets a primary. And and certainly, if those three senators that wouldn't go along with the clean version get primaried, those guys are going to they're going to feel some heat. You know, that's that's the worst kind of heat. Let me ask you this, and then who cares? I mean, it's it's a weird question, but but does it does it upset? Does it does it make you angry? 
Mike, and, and, and I'll get to Philip in a second, when you feel you've been unfairly attacked. Because there are groups out there on the Second Amendment in particular, Philip, but you know this probably better than Mike does, having been up there a while, that are very purist in nature. I mean, any, you're talking about clean or not. Uh, I've always felt, and I know both of you do, I mean, 100% of nothing's nothing. Uh, achieving the possible is better than getting told no to the impossible. But, but Mike, this would be your first full way. And, and, and someone kind of, I'm coming after you as a Senator. Does it frustrate you that there's a misunderstanding here and they're, they seem to be diminishing your belief in the second amendment? Yeah. It, I mean, that's more personal than, than anything else. Yeah, it's a, it's a, that's such a good question, Ken. It's uh, from coming from a business perspective, um, you generally let your yes be yes and your no be no because you've got a goal. You take care of customers, you make money, you take care of your employees, you've got a goal. And when somebody impugns what you're doing, you love the opportunity to say, well, let's have the conversation. If I did something, I'll own it. But if I didn't, you know, then, then don't say something that isn't true. So it did bother me, but, but I'll tell you, I took real solace um, some names that, because again, 29 of the 30 senators got it. Having a conversation with Senator Danny Verdon, Senator Tom Corbin, <laughs> Shane Martin, uh, imagine those guys, because those hit pieces went out for everyone, and each one said, well, we gutted constitutional carry. Those are the stalwarts on the Second Amendment Hill. And for those who have done it for 20 years and have fought for this, and Shane Martin in particular, 14 years he's fought for constitutional carry. And he almost was in tears. He said, I can't believe they're coming. We finally got the bill. And the only amendment out there essentially deals with those who break the law. We got constitutional carry. So I think it would be worse if you fought for a decade or a and a half on that. But it, it does hurt. That's why this show, I'm so grateful. People get to call in for people who call and email. And I, I've so cherished people who will reach out and I'll say, thank you. If I did a vote, that you don't like, I'll tell you, and we can disagree, but at least give me the opportunity of knowing the truth. Philip, how do you deal with that? Um, and I don't want to call it negativity or criticism. I mean, you're a big boy. I mean, the, the, that world you're in is full of that. I mean, there's going to be negativity. There's going to be criticism. But but some of these shadowy organizations that don't understand some of the complexities of getting things, through, they understand it, just don't have any respect for it. I mean, they know how hard it is to get something out of the House, through the Senate, signed in by law, of the governor, especially something as controversial as gun rights. But over the years, how have you dealt with not the personal attacks, but, but some of these shadowy purist organizations that, that, that say Philip Lowe's not really um, a guns rights advocate? Well, I complimented them on the cartoon characterization first, <laughs> and then I picked at them and I said, I think you're being divisive for the sake of keeping this argument going. I mean, you don't get perfection. It, we got 90, 95% of, of a clean bill back from the Senate. I could live with that. Was it perfect? No, it wasn't. They, they put those amendments in there as a poison pill to kill the bill, to put us exactly where we are now, where it goes to a conference committee who might meet but will never come up with a solution. Mark my words, we'll never come up with a solution. So we had a solution. And we, I could have lived with either one, but... Some folks, I think, won't want the debate to continue. They raise funds on it. They become important, pushing it. I'm not being ugly. That's that's part of life. That's that's where we're at in politics, though. But when you divide the gun rights people, which is I'm calling all of us gun rights, NRA and everybody, when you divide us, you're not helping the cause. You might be self-serving. Well explained. We'll take a break. We'll be back 
in just a few moments. 843-661-0937. Find me something to throw up in. What? I mean, we, 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 anyway, I'll just leave it there. I'll just leave it there. Um, we treat our elected officials with, with distinction here. At, uh, at Wake Up Carolina, theme songs and all. Can I give a shout-out to my man, Josh, just, right yeah, there? Of course you <laughs> I mean, my, my childhood bedroom, that's a throwback to my childhood. On one wall, I had the General Lee, because Dukes of Hazard was my show, and on the other wall, I had the Bandit Special. Oh, yeah. That 6.6-liter Trans Am right well, you there. you got so, good taste there. Well done. Real Josh, good that's taste That's my favorite there. car. Yeah, um, buddy. Well, I mean, that, that's <clears> Coors <throat> beer. Let's talk about another um, mind-altering substance. If you drink enough cold beer, your mind gets altered. The Senate took up uh, an issue that we've been toying around with, been talking about, Mike, on the periphery, Tom Davis. And I, and I get Tom. I mean, I know Tom. Tom's a libertarian-leaning Republican. Excuse me. Tom's a libertarian. <laughs> Tom's not a libertarian-leaning Republican. Tom is a libertarian. Less government intrusion, less government involvement is better. I mean, I, it doesn't surprise me that he's done the work. He's very smart, very, very dedicated to this particular cause. But this week, the Senate finally voted on a medical marijuana bill, and it won 26-19, I think. Um, once again, you don't speak for the Senate, but where does Senator Rickenbaugh stand there? Yeah, this was in my, my almost two years in the Senate, one of the, the toughest votes I've had to take. Uh, this is the first time I've listened to all of the medical marijuana testimony. Um, I, the last time they, they, they debated it, I wasn't in yet. So after listening them go through it, I was torn because you're hearing from people who have suffered from epilepsy and seizures and MS and the debilitating diseases and how they say medical cannabis helps them and is better for the, their stomachs, better for their digestion than opioids and better from an addiction standpoint. But at the end of the day, Ken, I had to vote against the medical marijuana because of the overwhelming testimony of how this is a gateway and how it will be abused despite the best efforts of the system of the medical community, of the pharmacies, it has been abused in other states. And even though Tom Davis, I think, has good intentions to help people and then hearing from people who say this would help them, and especially their children, which is heartbreaking. In other states, it has been abused. There's increased rates of homelessness, increased rates of unemployment, of depression. And then as the depression continues, they go back for higher doses and they go to their doctors. Um, doctors are fallible, pharmacists are fallible, people are fallible, and they will look for reasons to abuse this drug. And it has opened up a Pandora's box in a lot of states that they wish they hadn't done it. So I'll say, uh, candidly, I had to pray harder for this vote than anything I've prayed for, than any vote I've taken. I don't pay for the budget or some of the other things as much, but this was dealing with people's lives. Is a, Philip, is a limited government conservative <clears throat> hypocritical when he says I don't think medical marijuana should be made legal. I mean, you understand the philosophical, practical part of this. I mean, Mike's talking about philosophically, we believe less government. People should be allowed to do what they choose to do. But there is some consideration that we have to give to the common good, and you guys are in charge of kind of calibrating or determining what degree that is. The bill would have effects on society. I don't know how much, because everywhere I ride nowadays – I smell of a fragrant aroma coming out of many, many vehicles. It's everywhere. I'm talking 11 o'clock, 10 o'clock in the morning on the interstate. It doesn't matter. If you go to the corner CBD store, they've got basically marijuana in there already. It's, it's already here. On every, how many have we got in this town? Maybe four, five, six CBD stores? 
I talked to a, a person I was treating the other day in, in my therapy clinic, and and he was saying they went and, and busted one of those places. I won't say where, and they took out just a half a pickup truck full of marijuana out of it. And they're trying to get around it because they add some small, tiny little substance to it, whatever it is, and say, this isn't exactly marijuana. This is something else. And so until SLED can measure it and tell you how how strong it is, how potent it is, all this stuff, then you really they really can't uh, write them over, can't, can't put them in jail over it. So I don't know that it even matters. Uh, it's everywhere right but, now. But, but isn't the reality they're asking the official governing body of our state to endorse? I mean, I understand it's everywhere. And, and I mean, I understand their pros and cons. I think Mike nailed it. I mean, it's a complicated debate. I'm glad I don't have to vote on it. Now, I'm on the record. I would probably vote no. And, and my no vote would be based on my son's experience. I mean, I've got a, I mean, I lived, I traveled that road. I think marijuana kind of led to some other things. And, and I've talked to a lot of other addicts because my son uh, traveled that road that believed that marijuana was what led them to eventually become addicted to cocaine or heroin or some other um, sort of um, illicit substance. But, but Mike, what if, what if you felt more comfortable? Is it, is it marijuana, the drug, or is it, you don't trust government to regulate as much as you want. It, it's, I mean, and I understand where both of you are coming from. You, you're basically saying, Hey, I don't want government regulations except right now. And when I want government regulations, I'm not sure. I'll give you an example. You, you talked about testimony and I, and I've heard that testimony. Um, somebody who has a certain condition and marijuana helps that certain condition. But, but what if a, what if a doctor on the corner has a patient that is dealing with anxiety? And because they're anxious or depressed or nervous and they can't function like they need to, they need a little weed. Is that one of your concerns that every doctor prescribes every patient to some degree medical marijuana? And one of to, to expound upon that, one of my biggest concerns is not just uh, the, the behavioral and the emotional and mental challenges. It's with our youth. Um, we received some testimony from some of the states who said, you know, our percentage of youth who are now claiming to have anxiety, bipolar, depression, it's serious issues is at an all-time high. And this industry, this medical marijuana industry, has keyed on the fact that if you can get the young people in particular to feel that we medical weed will help their anxiety and their bipolar, it will create an entire generation that is dependent and as they use, use continues, their tolerance will grow up, so they will need more. Um, many have said that came in before us that said, this is financial. Yeah, the, is there a guy like a Tom Davis who really cares? Absolutely. But the billions of dollars that will be made off of this will dwarf anything we've seen in medicine in recent history. And it's going to create a generation of young people who has a dependency on drugs. And if you look in society, you look in the PD, we don't need more drug dependency. And, and Philip, to that point, it's always about the money. I mean, they're, they're, nobody's up there on their own goodwill. I mean, there are very few, few. I mean, I've been in that lobby. There's very few Mother Teresas roaming the lobby of the state house. They're there to do a job. They're getting paid to do a job. You respect that. I respect that. Mike respects that. But, but, but to that point, is it? I mean, I'm not asking the question as much as I'm giving somewhat of a commentary to get get your take on this. Do you feel conflicted? when you've historically argued for less government and don't trust government regulators 
and all of a sudden we have this societal issue that may be overwhelming. I don't get the argument, Philip, that we got to do this to be in more enlightened. We, we, you know, we're in the Stone Ages. Legalizing marijuana is the, the modern thing to do. Uh, that's not a question, but what's your follow-up commentary to that? You know, I feel like people should be able to do what they want, but they have to live with the consequences. Uh, that's that's a, kind of a libertarian standpoint there. And if if you don't get up on Monday morning and go to work and you're broke and your kids are hungry or you've got a gambling product problem or whatever it is that's taken all your resources away where you can't take care of your own life, don't come to me. Don't come to government. Problem is, is government has just too many of the, what are supposed to be pick-me-ups that then they become a crutch on government. So how do you do it? I mean, libertarian in this extreme position, uh, it doesn't work out you, because all of a sudden it goes from marijuana to what? Fentanyl. Well, I mean, and that's what I said. What if we do a research? What if somebody does research at Harvard next year and says, hey, we found out that heroin's good for rheumatoid arthritis? I mean, and, and somebody lobbies the General Assembly, hey, got, um, you know, two and a half million people in South Carolina experiencing some degree of rheumatoid arthritis. We need to legalize heroin. I just think you got to be real careful with that slippery slope. And, and Mike and Philip, I'll admit I'm a hypocrite here. I'll admit I'm talking out both sides of my mouth. I'll admit that historically I said, you know, less government, less government, no regulation, no regulations until now because I think drugs are that dangerous. I mean, I really believe they're that dangerous to society in general. And that's the balancing act of government, right, where we have to balance the, the competing needs of individual liberties with the good for society. I mean, there's a couple of senators who are p- p- proposing bills to legalize prostitution. And their point is, okay, all you Republicans, you, you all believe in limited government. You all believe in personal liberties. It's a woman's body. If it's not our, enough of our body that we can abort our children, um, then we should have the right to be able to at least sell our bodies if it's our choice for our own means. And I'm going to vote against that because I hear the argument, but I still believe in the good of society that legalizing prostitution is no different in terms of going down that bridge too far that harms society. Yeah, kind of a net negative, net positive, net negative. Let's yeah. go to the phone. Someone's there. Jameson and Spartanburg. Hi, you're on. Hey, good morning, guys. Uh, and Ken will give me a hard time about this, but if anyone can kiss ass more than Josh, you might have found your guy. So I apologize in advance for that. Uh, but just a quick question, and you guys stole my thunder because I did want to call in and ask about uh, the constitutional carry stuff. I had no clue what happened yesterday in the Senate. Went to bed early and woke up at 5 a.m. this morning actually with text from the author of the bill all the way from Daytona about you know this campaign that's going on against him up here in the upstate. Um, so I appreciate you uh, kind of explaining that a little bit because, again, I didn't even know. So I know most folks out there did not know. But I guess my question more so was um, – Coming up, obviously, you guys know it's about to be kind of that weird time of session where I think, Philip, your committee probably takes up the budget next week, I believe, goes to the House. We have Easter coming up, furloughs, that kind of thing, and then you know, folks are getting back home to campaign and whatnot. I guess for each of you in each body, what are maybe three or four things, I guess, big items coming down the line um, in each body that you guys would like to get done uh, before summertime? Thank that's you, all Jack. my question. Uh, Y'all have a great weekend. Thank you. You do the same. Yeah, I mean priorities. Ne- next week's furlough, if I'm not mistaken, Philip. What what as um as the as the house moves forward, uh, I think what third week of June, second week of June is the last week. May. Yeah. Okay. Second week of May. Um, you're right. So, but I mean, you come back and address some things after 
Uh, you'll send some governors. I mean, anyway, you'll take up vetoes and whatnot. If you but, have a sine dog. Uh, correct. But but what what do you, I mean, what do you hope to get done in the next month, month and a half? You know, I, I'm so focused on my part of the budget right now. And Which is? It, well, it's the criminal justice system, and I, it excludes judges, but it's all the law enforcement, and, and then I have the Conservation Bank and DNR, too. But I've got, I don't know, a, a billion, one point. Two billion dollar budgets I've got to wrestle with and figure it out, and we got some DJJ problems. You know, some big money problems that are out there that we're wrestling with and meeting on, trying to come up with the best solutions. I mean, it, it's spending they're right at two hundred thousand dollars a year per person to house them in DJJ. Wow! I could send them to Mexico on an all inclusive resort for fifty thousand a year. I mean, I know that's the Has joke, anybody but, dug, but, but <laughs> Philip, let's, let's go there for a second. Has anybody dug into that? I mean, why that number? That sounds staggering high to me. You know what? D.C., which is correct. Sure. It's okay. And that's just the regular prisoners. They're like 27,000. So we're talking 200,000 per year per person versus 27,000. And look, it can't be health care. I mean, these are 17, 18-year-olds that – you know that they're they're not in bad health. So, <clears throat> what are we doing? I don't know. That's the problems I've got to dig into, and I have to shut most of the world down during this first two months to try to solve problems. And I'm a part-time legislator going up there with eleven different agencies, trying to determine what it is they're doing right or wrong. And everything that you've done in the past is in the past. Now we're only arguing about what to do with the new money, our leftover money now. So I'm supposed to cure their problems on, on extra money this year when they've got 100 years of problems that are swept under the rug that I don't even get to see. I, I want to stay here a second. I want to take a break and come back with Mike. I want to get the Senate's priorities from his per- perspective. Um, what percentage, I'm not going to hold you to an exact number, but how big a burden, that would be a, a fair way, how big a burden is the Medicaid part of the budget to the general fund? So this year, before we do anything with whatever extra money we have, we have to take care of what they call a maintenance of effort. It's $100 million extra. More money we've got to take off the top of the budget of whatever new money we have, and that's got to go for Medicaid. So it grew by $100 million last year and the year before, and the year before it's just been staggering watching it rise. And, and that's the reason I'm asking. I mean, I've read a lot of states are dealing with that. I mean, the pass down from the federal government of the Medicaid, what, what is it called again in your world? Uh, the match, what, 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 what's it called? The Medicaid match? No, no, you just you, you said it a second ago. Um, maintenance of effort? Ma- maintenance of effort. I mean, it increases every year exponentially. Um, and it really hamstrings you from being able to do things like fix roads, like invest in education, like, like some of the things that, that I know the General Assembly would love to do. I don't think people understand. I mean, it was it was beginning down that road, Philip, when I was there 12 years ago, and I've seen staggering increases that the Ways and Means and Finance in the Senate has to deal with. And insurance. You've been on that kick this week, too. The insurance for the state employees is close to $100 million. So if we have $600 million extra money for recurring dollars, which means you have to fund something every year with that, once you start it, you don't pull it back on it, and 300 of that 600 is just this over. You got to you got to go fund health care, and you've got to do the Medicaid insurance, and about three or four other things. You know, you've got reserve funds you've got to fund. So you cut that money in half. 
every year. And yeah. then we've got to resolve the problems of, of the rest of the state government with 300. I'm, I'm glad it's the two of you and not me. We'll <laughs> take a break. We'll be back in just a second. I want to get with Mike. 843-661-0937. want to make sure we're accurate here. We're, we're always opinionated. Sometimes we're accurate. Uh, we take that seriously. I mean, I know we joke around a lot about um, the way we say things, but I've had two, I've had three people send me an exact quote of what Fonnie Willis said, and here it is. You ready? When I took out a large amount of money on my first campaign, I kept some of the cash from that. So the sport, the reports I read this morning were accurate. Rev said he read some of the same thing. A couple mm-hmm. of callers said, I don't know if she said that or not. Well, I mean, that's, that's a quote attributed to her uh, via a legitimate news organization. Not as legitimate as Wake Up Carolina, but legitimate nonetheless. Philip kind of updated on what he thinks the important matters of the house is. But I want to say in the first, if, if you're on the ways and means or finance, I mean, you're on that budget and you're hoping other people are doing what they're supposed to do. I mean, I'll be honest with you. You're spending taxpayer dollars that consumes about every ounce of energy you have. And you've got judiciary doing their thing and some other committees doing, doing their thing. But I got to believe getting ready for the budget is almost a full-time, full-time job for representative Lowe. Uh, Senator Rickenbaugh, what do you perceive the priorities of the Senate to be? Yeah, the, the biggest bill we've got uh, that was dropped this week, a bill that I co-sponsored, was the judicial reform bill. Uh, we had we had 25 senators, of the Republican senators, uh, get on board with that bill. And it's going to be a major overhaul of the JMSC, the Judicial Merit Screening Committee. Um, one of the biggest things it does is that it takes off lawyer legislators. And across the board, it just says, you know, even with, with good intentions, there's inherent bias. If you are a legislator who's a lawyer who will be trying cases in front of these judges that you're selecting and have the opportunity to remove. So uh, it changes the structure in terms of they aren't going to be just from the General Assembly for the primary. There'll be like two from the gen- two from the House, two from the Senate, two from the governor's office. The Supreme Court gets to pick one. The solicitors get to pick one. So it really... Um, diversifies where the JMSC members will come from. They will all be attorneys, but they cannot be lawyer legislators. Uh, the second thing it does is it looks at magistrates. Uh, Chairman Peeler of uh, the Senate Finance, that he and I have had a passion to reform the magistrate process. So it would have a lot more teeth in the, the magistrate process, and it would allow both bodies, the House and the Senate, to come together to select every one of the magistrates. Um, so that it would not just be the Senate um, who would be selecting the magistrates. The goal is really twofold, Ken. It's to have more transparency in how – oh, the other thing, by the way, on the, it, instead of the JMSC only allowing three qualified members to be selected, um, even if five members of the, of the, the bar are qualified to be judges, um, you, instead of constraining it to the three that you personally like and playing favorites, if you are found qualified – you are going to be able to be voted on. Um, and, and that's been a real challenge where, you know, the wink, wink, nod, nod, five people are qualified, but we're only going to limit these three because we don't like these two for whatever the personal reasons. So transparency is one of the, the primary goals and having the judicial system, the gov- the judges reflect the conservative nature of our state. Is it fair to say, Senator Rickenbaugh, that the concern you have is not with the competency of the judges, but how they become judges. I, I think that's, that's very, it, very fair. Okay. Is it fair to say 
contrary to that, you're questioning the competency of some of the magistrates. Is is that a fair statement? But that, that's where I land. I mean, I, I don't think we have a bunch of bad judges and unqualified judges. I think the process is too influenced by certain folks. But when it comes to magistrates, and, and the majority of people bump into law enforcement in magistrate court. And I just wonder how competent. Can we do something to make sure we're not playing political favorite, but rather finding people who are genuinely capable to do the job? Yeah, two two points to your question I can answer briefly. Um, on the competency of the, the judges above the magistrate level, the circuit court, appellate court, family court, and Supreme Court, um, it's not about competency, but it is about their political ideologies. Judges are meant, are supposed to be nonpartisan. Um, but as we mentioned before on the show, I think last month, I have such a hard visceral time when we're, you know, on, we were on the cusp of some of the members of the body selecting judges who have been endorsed by the ACLU, endorsed by Planned Parenthood. They are known left leaning Democrat judges um, who we're asking them to rule on matters of law in a state that has conservative backbone. So they don't align with the constituency. So it's not a competency. It's about where their leanings are. At the magistrate level, um, look, by design, magistrates don't have to be attorneys. Now, the governor has asked that every magistrate be an attorney, and we've talked about that. There are certain counties, like um, some of you more impoverished counties, that they pay a magistrate $50,000 a year. Most attorneys aren't going to leave their law practice um, for $50,000 a year. So if magistrates are not going to be attorneys, they're not, many of them will not know the law as well, but they're making rulings that can be appealed, but it's expensive to be appealed. And I think there is some question on, can we do better in how we select magistrates? Philip, any idea? I know you're busy with, with the ways and means, but this is a big issue. And we've talked about it for years and years and years, a better way to pick judges. I think we've all agreed. What's the, the least bad of all the bad ways? What's the best of the bad ways? Um, where, where do you suspect the House is with what the Senate's doing? Well, the House is doing a bill of their own, and there's really no way to comment on something that's not completely formed out of the House yet. And the Senate, you know, they're going to amend whatever they've got going on. It's, it's going to be a hodgepodge. The question is, are we going to end up with better judges? And better in whose eyes? Better in the conservatives' eyes? Better in the liberals' eyes? Better as in a mixture of the two? You know, I tell you what I don't want to see. We had 35 judges. They're still walking around the state house and now shaking hands, wanting to talk to you. And they know your kid's name, your dog's name. I mean, they're just, they're competing with each other. They're politics. fighting for a job. They're fighting for it. And at 35 of them, we've got to figure out who's the best out of all these races. Now the Senate version already sounds like they're going to open it up to unlimited number. It, it could be 10 judges for the same race. This 35 will swell to 65 in the next election. Now I've got to decide between 65. There's a point at which you're saturated. I want the best judges. Of course, I want the best conservative judges. So I'm going to lean for whatever comes out to where I think that the party that's in power, which are conservatives right now, have the best chance of electing judges. That's what I'm going for. But the application of justice is so important. I mean, we were talking about Fonnie Willis saying, you know, there, there's some shenanigans going on uh, down there. Real quick, got about, what, a minute and a half, Rev? Yep. Um, Trump, Haley, South Carolina primary. Rick and Bob, give me a, give me a percentage difference. I don't want to know who wins. I think we all agree who wins. But, but how bad does Donald Trump beat former Governor Nikki Haley in next Saturday's South Carolina primary? 30, 32 points. Okay, 32 points. 
Representative Lowe, I think you served with Representative Haley, if I'm not mistaken. Absolutely did. In your young and less gray days. Probably six or eight years yeah, we did. Yeah. Um, so what I see is is independents and females and some crossover Democrats will pull her to within 25 points. Okay. So you're talking 60. Okay, both of you are fairly, fairly close somewhere um, there about. Nikki will be with us. Excuse me. Governor Haley, Ambassador Haley, will be with us in the next hour at 9.05. I think scheduled to appear. Uh, and I want to thank Josh and Wayne Mulling. I mean, they busted it. They stayed after it and stayed after it and stayed after it. It's I'm still saying scheduled to appear because campaigns are very weird, weird organisms. And they don't always, or organizational structures, they don't always, things don't always go as planned. I'll just, uh, I'll just leave it there. But I want to say again that I don't, well, I mean, I think you do. I think you understand how fortunate you are to have at least two, well, at least one, sometimes two, most times three elected officials serving in Columbia willing to come and in the dark, take your call about whatever you decide to discuss and talk about. Take a break. On the other side, Ambassador, Governor, maybe President Nikki Haley. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. 843-661-0937 is our number. Very seldom do we have such a distinguished guest as we have next, I don't know whether to call her governor or ambassador, but um, governor slash ambassador Nikki Haley is with us this morning. Good morning, ma'am. How are you? Good morning, Ken. You know it's Nikki. How are you? It's great to be with you. It is great to be with you. So I'm going to set the stage and let you do what I know you know how to do, and that states your case. The Republican Party is in turmoil. I mean, it's in a very uncertain place. Some believe that if any candidate could ever get one-on-one with Donald Trump, that was the key. That was the key to convincing a lot of uncertain Republicans what the best path forward was. A lot have tried that. You have succeeded. So, Governor slash Ambassador slash Nikki, why do you believe today South Carolinians need to vote for you instead of Donald Trump? Well, you know, it's not personal, Ken. I voted for Donald Trump twice. I was proud to serve America in his administration. This is not about a personal issue with him. This is about the future of our country. And when you look at the fact that we've got a country in disarray and a world on fire, we can't go through four more years of chaos. And you look at the situation of where we are. Here we lost in 2018, we lost in 2020, we lost in 2022. Then you go and look at what happened last week. Trump lost another case on immunity. He's now going to be tried as citizen Trump. He's going to be in court on one case, March and April, on another case, May and June. Then we lost a vote on impeaching Mayorkas. Then we lost a vote on Israel. Then the RNC chair lost her job, and he had his fingerprints in all of that. Chaos just follows him. And we just can't deal with it. We have to win. There will be a female president of the United States. It will either be me or it will be Kamala Harris. And you look at every general election poll. In every one of those polls, Trump is down. He's down to Biden by five points, by seven points. On his best day, it's margin of error. I'm in every one of those same general election polls. And I defeat Biden by up to 17 points. 
Think about that. That's bigger than the presidency. That's House. That's Senate. That's governorships. That's school boards. But you win by double digits. You're going into D.C. with a mandate to stop the wasteful spending by Republicans and Democrats and get our economy back on track to get our kids reading again and go back to the basics on education. A mandate to secure our border with no more excuses, a mandate to bring law and order back to our cities and a mandate for a strong America where we prevent wars that we can all be proud of. That's what we're trying to do is win. And we know how to do it. What you saw in South Carolina we would do on a, on a national stage. Remember, when, when I came in, we had 11% unemployment. We brought it down to 4%. We were named the beast of the Southeast because by the time I left, we were building planes with Boeing. We were building more BMWs than any place in the world. We brought in Mercedes-Benz. We brought in Volvo, five international tire companies. Then we passed tort reform and pension reform. We passed the toughest illegal immigration law in the country. President Obama sued us over it. And we won. We passed voter ID. Every We cut taxes. We built up our coffers. Just imagine if we did what we did in South Carolina, if we did that for the country. That's what I'm trying to do. Nikki, there's, there's a generation of voters in the Republican Party that, for whatever reason, believe the world had passed them by. You're from Bamberg. I'm from Pamplico. You know those people. I know those people. I don't know that they're ideologically driven but they find a certain attraction to this populist nationalist movement. What do you say to those people who believe that the the body politic left them no other chance but to vote for someone as controversial and as chaotic as Donald Trump? I say I hear you, and I totally understand. Growing up in Bamberg, I mean, you had a group who felt unheard and unseen. I mean, remember, I was part of the Tea Party movement where we knew government was taxing us enough already. That's how I won governor, was being a Tea Party candidate. And right now, people are tired of working for government. They just want government to serve the people again. And you look at all the spending. We're $34 trillion in debt. And I would love to be able to tell you, Ken, that Biden did that to us. But our Republicans did that to us, too. All you have to do is go back and look at that $2.2 trillion COVID stimulus bill that passed with no accountability that's now left us with 80 million Americans on Medicaid, 42 million Americans on food stamps. That's a third of our country. And Republicans haven't done anything to make it right. And even under Trump, everybody talks about the economy we had, but they don't realize that the way we got it, he put us eight trillion dollars in debt in just four years our kids are never going to forgive us for that you look at what he's proposing now listen carefully he's going to raise taxes on every american family he's going to put tariffs on all goods coming into america from baby strollers to appliances he's going to basically saying with social security he's going to cut social security by 24 percent in 10 years and then you go and you look at the fact look at how he's handling everything else he was in conway last Saturday. And what did he say? He said that not only will he not defend our allies who are in NATO if they don't pull their weight, but he'll actually encourage Putin to invade them. Think about what that says. That's Trump siding with a thug who kills his political opponents. By the way, he killed another one this morning. He's siding with Putin who continues to try and destroy America at every turn. He's siding with a man who's arrested an American journalist for doing his job. And you're going to side with Putin 
over the countries that stood with us at 9-11? It doesn't make sense. We can't think like that anymore. We can't do things like that anymore. You know, my husband is deployed. And he, on stage in Conway, mocked my husband. Now, this isn't personal. I mean, in politics, you can't take things personally. That's the problem with Donald Trump and Joe Biden is, is they take everything personally. But you mock one member of the military, you mock all members of the military. And this is a pattern. It's not just that he's mocking my husband for being deployed and not being here with me. But he's called the military members who died and lost their lives losers and suckers. He was in Arlington National Cemetery Cemetery, and said, what was in it for them? I mean, he's never so much as been near a uniform. He's never laid on the ground. The closest he's come to being harmed is being hit by a golf ball in a golf cart. I mean, you, you can't talk about military members like that and make us think that you're going to keep them safe. But more than that, Ken, are we really at a point where we're not listening to the American people? Seventy percent of Americans have said they don't want to see a Trump-Biden rematch. The majority of Americans disapprove of Trump. The majority of Americans disapprove of Biden. And now 59% of Americans, a poll came out this last weekend, now say they think Donald Trump is too old and Joe Biden is too old. Why are we allowing our only hope to be left in the hands of two 80-year-olds? We need a new generational conservative leader that can put in eight years that can do the hard work with no vendettas, with no drama, and just get it done for the American people. It's time. Last question. Appreciate your time. Former governor and ambassador of current presidential candidate Nikki Haley is joining us on Wake Up Carolina. Our political past, mine in particular, I'm 60, has been defined by the Cold War. You talked about Putin. You talked about Zelensky. Our political future, Nikki, I believe will be defined by how we deal with Russia. It is the preeminent geopolitical adversary of our time. You're younger than Trump. You talk about that contrast of age. How would a Haley administration deal with communist China? You know, I'll tell you, I dealt with Russia, China, and Iran every day when I was at the United Nations. And when I got to the U.N., I purposely didn't study the do's and don'ts of the U.N. I wanted to go in with fresh eyes. But I told countries what America was for and what America was against. I didn't care if they didn't like me, but I wanted them to respect America. And what I saw is every day Russia lies. All they do is create chaos. That's how they find their powers, creating chaos. China is much smarter. They're more deliberate. And we have to get this right on China. If you look at China's been preparing for war with us for years, they now have purchased 400,000 acres of U.S. soil, most recently near Grand Forks Air Force Base, where our most sensitive drone technology is. They put millions of dollars into our universities, stealing Chinese propaganda, uh, spreading Chinese propaganda and stealing our research. Everybody saw the Chinese spy balloon go overhead. That's not because we have beautiful beaches. We do. But that's because they were connecting and getting surveillance of all our military installations and sending it to China. They now have Chinese police stations in America. They are putting a spy base off our shores in Cuba and they're building up their military at a scary pace. They now have the largest naval fleet in the world. They have 370 ships. They'll have 400 ships in two years. We won't even have 350 ships in two decades. They now have 500 nuclear warheads. That's 100 more than they had last year. They're 
doing artificial, they're doing cyber, they're doing space, they're doing hypersonic missiles. We've barely gotten started. And now China's the lead developer of neurostrike weapons, weapons engineered to change the brain activity of military commanders and segments of the population. That's who we're dealing with. Nikki, I, want I to be... don't care what. I'm sorry. Now you continue. I was going to say, I don't want to go and say, when Biden goes and says that China's a competitor, I saw every day China's not a competitor. They're an enemy. We have to start treating China the way they treat us. And the way we deal with that is you go and you modernize our military where we focus on the threats of the future, not the past. We go to every university and say you either take foreign money or you take American money. But the days of taking both are over. We go and tell them we're going to end all normal trade relations until they stop murdering Americans with fentanyl because they're the ones sending it over. We stop sending them any technology that threatens America and builds up their military. And we let them know that we're on to them. That's the way you deal with China. Uh, I want to be respectful of your time. You told us you're on a schedule, but I do want to give you the floor and let you encourage other South Carolinians, our listeners, your uh, past voters and potential future, future voters, um, I mean, I, I guess I'm I'm giving you a chance to make your plea to our listeners here, Nikki, uh, as you pursue the Republican nomination. Well, you know, what I will tell you is when I announced, someone asked me why I was doing this. And I said, my parents came here 50 years ago to an America that was strong and proud and full of opportunities. I want them to know that country again. I'm doing this for my husband, Michael, and his military brothers and sisters who are deployed. They need to know their sacrifice matters. They need to know that we love our country. I'm doing this for my daughter who just got married, and I saw how hard it was for her and her husband to buy a home. The average home buyer in America now is 49 years old. The American dream is leaving them. And I'm doing this for my son who's a senior in college, and I'm tired of watching him write papers of things he doesn't believe in just to get an A. That's not us. And for the first time, 81% of Americans don't think their kids are going to live as good of a life as we did. We can't be okay with that. I'm not okay with that. We have a country to save. But I will tell you this. I said this to you when you voted for me twice before. I'll say this now. If you join this movement, if you vote on the 24th, early voting has started, If you join us, I promise you our best days are yet to come. Anybody can vote in this election as long as you didn't vote in the Democrat primary on February 3rd. There has never been an election that has mattered more on the future of our country than this. We need someone who can put in eight years. No more chaos. No more drama. No more revenge. We've got to focus on what matters. And I'll just say this, Ken. When we were... um, After New Hampshire, everybody, we had 14 people in the race. We defeated a dozen of them. The night of New Hampshire, they said we were going to be 30 points down, and we came in at 43%. Trump threw a temper tantrum, and all he did was talk about revenge. The next day, he said anybody that supports her will be barred permanently from MAGA. Now, think about that. A president of the United States should want to bring people in, not push people out of his club. And then the next day, he tried to get the RNC to name him the presumptive nominee. And now we see he spent $50 million of his campaign contributions on his personal court cases. We can't continue like this. We won't win. And so the key is let's move on with a new generational leader and let's get our country back on track. We're going to be all over the state. Go to NikkiHaley.com. Join us at a rally. Come by and see us. And let's go and show that 
we can have a country that's strong and that we can be proud of. Nikki, thank you for your time. Good luck, and um, maybe we'll speak again soon. Thank you. Thanks so much, Ken. God bless you. Nikki Haley, former ambassador to the U.N., governor of South Carolina, and I want to congratulate once again um, Wayne Mully, our general manager, who persisted, and Josh, who persisted in landing a pretty big interview for Wake Up Carolina. Indeed. Um, another notch in the old belt of this feeble <laughs> attempt at Radio Brigance. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937 is our number. So what'd you think? What did you think? Mm, what did you think, <laughs> Joshua? No comment. Okay. No, seriously, what did you think? Um, I thought I mean, it was... You've not uh, heard Nikki as much as... I mean, I heard that... From, I, I, I've heard that voice say those things, mm-hmm. not not about being president, but being governor and running for governor. I've heard that voice say those sorts of things many, 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 many times. You've not. What did you think? I told Sandy, her to- more commenting on her tone, it kind of reminded me of being in school. She sounded like a teacher I once had. Very prepared. Um, Very, very prepared. Honestly, like kind of the same talking points just i've heard a thousand times not anything that made me go hmm. but 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 obviously understanding of the issue yes um has studied the issue is very disciplined in delivery here's what i say guys and look take what i say nikki haley is running for president i got thrown out of office i mean she and i got elected the same day i mean i got about 50,000 by 40,000 more votes than she did. But today, she is one of two standing seeking the Republican nomination. I mean, I love my life, don't get me wrong, but I got thrown out of office. So I don't know who knows what they're talking about. Here's what I'll say. And, and I think I'm right about this, and I think this is the attraction with Trump. It's not what Trump stands for. It's what he represents. Well, there's no difference. Yes, there is. Yes, there is. I mean, there, there are things you stand for, and then there's an external representation. People are not as interested in what Trump ideologically believes in as much as what they think he represents. He's revenge. He's settling a score. He's giving them a chance to k- kind of get back at folks that they believe have been not entitled to have the power they have. And, and I think the way, the reason that Trump has been so successful, Josh, and it may be consciously, it may be subconscious. I don't know. Once again, take it for what it's worth. But, but I think the, whether we admit it or not, voters are consumers of politics. And they're consumer brands. In the weirdest way imaginable, Nikki Haley is a consumer brand. Donald Trump is a consumer brand. Chris Toothpaste is a consumer brand. Um, Life Water is a consumer brand, and historically, the actress, actress is the stunt man, stunt woman, have worked. We we, we kind of we we kind of allow that to be the case. I call it the plasticated candidate. You know, did they page at the Supreme Court? Yeah. Did they join the National Guard? Yeah. Do they have a degree from a unit? Yeah. Check in the box. Check in the box. Check in the box. Well, Trump comes along and just obliterates that. In in all honesty, I mean, I've told others this. I would never, 
in a million years running into a Republican today say I had a master's degree from Duke? You'd have to pry that out of me. He graduated from Harvard. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. That's a lie. That's a lie. Somebody messed with my Wikipedia page. I didn't graduate. I barely got out of high school. That's weird. That We're celebrating normalcy. It, it's almost like historically, because I'm a little bit like Tucker. I, I, think, I think humans and animals are hierarchical. I mean, I think we kind of like people we think are smarter and stronger than we are leading things. I mean, I, I just do. I think our very nature says, hey, you big, strong, smart person, you go do that. I, you know, I trust you to do it. I think we all, so once again, maybe consciously, maybe subconsciously, but we all kind of defer to that. Um, Trump is a strong man. I mean, he's 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 a strong man. He, his, his, his image, his brand, his bombast, his narcissism, it reeks of that. But you know what it doesn't smell like? It doesn't smell like an actor. It doesn't smell like a stunt man. You don't believe that, that he goes up there with his preconceived 45-minute speech. I mean, he reads teleprompters. I get that. But he ad-libs a lot. And he says things and his, his animations. And I, I just think people are so tired of the, it's almost like the AI candidate. You know, um, you got all these checks and all these boxes. And I think that people are beginning to, to, to accept that they were wrong. Once again, I think people are hierarchical. I think we want a ruling class. We just wanted to be good and deserving and smart and competent and big and strong and smart. You know what I mean? And I think we're beginning to detect that, hey, these people that, the, 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 these people that we put so much stock in because they went to Harvard, because they have an MBA, and I'm not diminishing education. Please understand, I'm applying kind of a political intuition. It's not I'm belittling education. I'm certainly not. I am so grateful that my daughter will graduate with a degree in finance from the Dollarmore School of Business. I think that prepares her to be successful as she moves forward in life. But she's not, but I think the body politic has overrepresented how important that is, and they're paying a price for it. We're, we're, we're starting to find out now that they were paper tigers that they weren't the best and brightest. I mean, how do you argue that our country is being run by the best and brightest today? Somebody legitimately argue that point with me now. I mean, it's, it's the biggest enterprise on the planet. It needs to be run by the best and brightest. And it's not. I mean, it's run by the most educated. It's run, I mean, it's kind of a caste system. It's, it's a little bit like entitlement. Someone sent me an article yesterday. Um, I showed Rev this. Luxury, um, is it luxury opinions? Um, luxury perspectives? What did what I tell you it was? It was luxury something. Buddy of mine sent me the article, and it's so interesting because it basically says that luxury um, opinions. Luxury opinions. In other words, if you have certain opinions of crime, certain opinions of race, certain opinions of politics, certain opinions of ah. Uh, transgenderism, you're allowed to live in that luxury class with the affluence. But if you've got these traditional opinions, they're not as easily accepted. It's nonsense. It's crazy. But it's kind of the actress, actor, stuntman, stuntwoman luxury part of it. Beliefs. Luxury beliefs. Do you believe in traditional marriage? No. Why? 
because I want to be accepted at Yale. Do you believe that there's two genders? No. Why? Because I want to be president of Harvard one day. The, the, these, these nonsensical beliefs that societies decide to give extraordinary value to because you appear to be woke and enlightened and open-minded and, you know, you're, you're kind of a, you're, you're interested in science and the pursuit of a better way. And I mean, it's nonsense. That's the people that are running the country and that's the people that hate Trump. And the more those people hate Trump, guess what? The more the regular folk, current company included, like him. And the more we're attracted to, because we almost feel like we're not voting against Nikki Haley. We're voting against BlackRock. We're voting against J.P. Morgan. We're voting against NATO. I don't have a problem with Nikki, but I got a big problem with BlackRock. Let me ask you this as an example, guys. We'll take a break, Josh. Give me a second. It's important. We agree. Philip and Mike debated the Second Amendment. We'll agree that every amendment in some way, shape, or form has to be regulated. The First Amendment, I'll give you the You can't yell fire in a crowded theater, right? What's more dangerous in America? Because the Citizens United case basically said that the limit on free speech is not, we don't exceed the limit of free speech by 20 companies contributing 70% of all the political funds raised to run for office. Let me say that again. About 20 companies in America, and I'm not talking about direct contributions to campaigns, but about 20, maybe 30, maybe 30 companies in America contribute about 70% of all campaign donations, and about 70% of those 30 companies give to both sides. I mean, they're hedging their bets. They don't care who runs government. They just want to be in charge. So what's a bigger threat to America? Someone yelling, fire in a crowd of theater? Or 30 companies contributing 70% of all the cash raised by political campaigns? I mean, I understand I'm being hypocritical because I believe in free speech. And I believe in spending your profit the way you choose to spend your profit. But as a practical matter, forget philosophy, forget ideology. As a practical matter, if, if, if you can't yell fire in a crowded theater, is too extreme for your right to have free speech, how is 30 companies donating 70% of all the money to try and get people elected to be in charge of government not? And how can you get truly representative government? You can't. Where the representatives represent you can't. the people. There's no way. The voters. Well, I mean, once again, I talk about these friends of mine, um, talking about investing, investing in a, uh, talking about cryptocurrency and Bitcoin and whatnot, invested in a BlackRock ETF Bitcoin fund. Why'd you choose BlackRock? You know what the answer was? He's not a conspiracy theorist by any stretch. He's nowhere near me. I freak him out. I mean, he takes me in small doses. You know what he said to me? BlackRock runs the world. And what they don't run, the other six or eight banks do. I mean, it's so, so we've already established that yelling crowd, yelling fire in a crowded theater, you can't do that. I mean, that, that's, that you can't do that. I know the First Amendment gives you right to free speech, but you can't do that. But the Supreme Court said that 70% of all contributions made to political campaigns in the dark, I mean, these aren't, you know, disclosed. I mean, these are political action committees, can be made by 30 companies. What scares you more? If somebody yells fire in a crowd of theater, I'm the hell out of there. There's nothing I can do about 30 companies buying our political system. Take a break. 
back at a few. I mean, I don't think anybody believed that Nikki was going to call into the show and just stumble around and be drunk and not know what she's talking about. I mean, um, yeah, but did she? I'm convinced that one of the things we got to try before we leave the airwaves, however long the good Lord gives us, we got to do a show drinking. <laughs> I mean, I've never been a morning drinker in my best softball days. It might be entertaining. I could start at about 11 when I, when I was younger in my best softball days, I could start at about 11 and go for the duration. There is no way I could do that today. I just think it would add flavor. You think? <laughs> Amongst other things. <laughs> Let's go. But, but I was going to ask you, so so Nikki Haley, and I'm glad she called in, and she did a great job. I mean, she's one of two candidates standing for the Republican nomination for president, right? Um, and Are there any undecided voters in this primary at this point where she has a chance to swing or, or, or get them to vote for her? Or are there any people that have... De- were previously in the Trump camp that hearing an interview might turn over and think her arguments are reasonable and give her support. Now, I think she makes reasonable arguments. I think the most compelling argument she makes is the age contrast, you know, having two 80 year olds. I, we can do better than that for sure. Nikki can't contrast policy. She, she has to, I mean, she's pretty much in lockstep with Trump's policy on China. I mean, Trump's less interventionist than she appears to be. And I don't know where Nikki's heart is there. I mean, I know she's taking a lot of money from people who have a lot to gain by the world being a complicated place, a dangerous place. Um, I'm not accusing Nikki of anything. And I want to say this, as I said in my, I'll give myself more credit than I deserve, in my op-ed that was widely distributed. Um, I don't have a problem with Nikki. I, I just think right now that the, the time calls for a unique disruptor. And I'm willing to, to put up with the chaos and controversy to disrupt what we discussed for the last 30 minutes, that being the elite ruling class that I don't believe are competent enough to run the government. I mean, I think they're academically qualified. I think they're, they're historically versed. I just don't think they have it in them to run a behemoth like the United States federal government. You, you asked a question earlier about why don't they seem to respond to the voter? Why don't they seem to understand where we are on some of these issues the, the only person that gained the degree of influence that changed the dynamic of our family business was the person that signed the checks. I mean, when my, bro- when my father was alive, my brother and I carried some weight. I mean, you know, our name was on the side of the buildings, the old phrase goes. We carried a little weight, but you do carried more? My dad. You know why? Because he signed your paycheck. When my dad passed away, all of a sudden, the employees cared a lot more about what Sammy and Ken thought. Why? Because we got smarter overnight? Nah, we signed the paycheck. Raytheon signs the paycheck. That's the way it works. BlackRock signs the paycheck. Here's your friendly daily reminder. Money's the answer. Now, what's the question? Let's go to the phone. Benji in Latta. Good morning. Hey, Ken. I'm so glad you said that uh, that comment there, money's the answer, what's the question? Because it leads into my, uh, my comments and, and two big questions for you. Um, so I'm actually kind of frustrated with all the, the, the politicians and the candidates that are running for president right now, both on both sides of the aisle, because uh, Governor Haley kind of touched on it for like half a second, but no one is talking about the $34 trillion elephant in the room. And so I look at everything we're spending on, you know, we got, what, a billion dollars more going to Ukraine right now. We're spending, you know, money on this and that. And, and it kind of even goes into your uh, 
your your conversation the other day when you were talking about health insurance on how, you know, people who pay their bills are having to compensate and foot the bill for other people that don't. So I kind of got two questions for you and, and some comments as far as since you've been in office and you've kind of seen how a budget and government works is, first off, why is no one truly talking about the deficit and how to fix it? And then secondly, what do you think it would look like when at some point we have to pay the piper? Because, you know, I listened to Dave Ramsey a little bit, and he says, what, what does someone who's financially secure do? He can do anything he wants. And so it kind of goes back to the government. If we were in a financially secure position, I don't think we'd be as concerned about health care for all. I don't think we'd be concerned about giving a billion dollars to Ukraine. I don't think we'd be concerned about all these frivolous projects like do monkeys like listening to classical music and things like that because we would have the funds and the means to do it. So that, that, that's like two big things that I, I just – I don't understand why nobody wants to address it because sooner or later we're going to have to pay the piper, and I don't know what that looks like. So I'd love to get your comments on, on those two uh, those two questions. Thank you, Benji. That's- appreciate that. Well, I mean, if you're working in government – Let's say you're a good and moral person and you genuinely care about your fellow man. Why would you have a sense of urgency in addressing the deficit and addressing spending money you don't have? We're talking about actors and actresses and stunt men and stunt women. You're kind of living in a world where you play in games with other people's money. I mean, some of it's taxpayer dollars, some of it's borrowed money. When business struggles, when business understands that it has a debt issue, there is a sense of urgency. I mean, I've been in those conversations. I have been. I mean, it's kept me up at night. You got a lot of money borrowed. The business isn't working as well as you thought it would. You're concerned about your ability to pay the bank back, and that debt keeps you up at night. Why? Because you personally guaranteed that debt. You've collateralized that debt. There's something fundamentally different about your life if you don't pay that debt. There is no sense of urgency in government because nobody spends their own money. I mean, if it's anybody's money and everybody's money, it's nobody's money. If it's nobody's money, it's anybody and everybody's money. That's the concept of Blue Ribbon Committees. We got a big problem. I don't want to tell you what my thing is. Let's get a Blue Ribbon Committee. Why? Because 11 of us can blame one another. So, so there's no sense of urgency in addressing the debt or deficit spending because we got these things running on autopilot. Everybody seems to kind of like them, and I'm not spending my money. I don't have the bank calling me or asking me, or I'm looking at my pro forma, wow, we thought this, and it turns out that. I mean, that creates that sense of urgency that I don't think will ever exist in our government. When it comes to the other side of the blow-up, when the debt bubble finally burst, here's the only thing I know. It destroys the value of your dollar. To what degree, I don't have any idea. Uh, When, I don't have any idea. But when the debt bubble burst, I'm sure of this. It destroys the historical nature of the dollar. The preferred currency since the Second World War is no longer. I don't have any idea. Is that $35 trillion, $120 trillion? Is it 60% devalued, 80%? I don't know. But when we face the, the irresponsible spending that we've been a part of, and this is boomers, I mean, we're, we're, going, to, we're going to hand off to our grandkids a dollar worth far less than it has been for the balance of our lives. I mean, that, that is, I mean, we love them, we say, 
but we're going to hand them a paycheck that's going to be worth 20% historically of what ours has been. The dollar becomes a pretty average currency, and it devalues in a monumental, monumental fashion, and our grandkids and great-grandkids will fundamentally live less of a standard of living than we historically have. Time for some trivia. You ready, Josh? 843-661-0937 is our number. I want to thank our good friends at Pepsi of Florence. Still a sponsor. Cross your fingers <laughs> that they stay a sponsor. They're the best there is. I mean, I'm I'm serious. I mean, that they are as good as you can deal with. I don't know that we've ever asked them to be a part of a partnership that they've said no. It's always, hey, how can we be a part of this? How can we be community-oriented, community-minded, and we're very blessed to have them as part of our team. Here's my question. Governor slash Ambassador Nikki Haley was a guest a few moments ago. Who did Nikki beat in the 2010 Republican primary runoff? Mm. Who did Nikki Haley defeat in the 2010 South Carolina Republican primary runoff. You might have to be a real political junkie well, to remember we're this We're going to make them earn that Pepsi and, and two T-shirts today. Do we have a call? Uh, phone is ringing. Yes. Hi, you're on. What's your guess? I'm guessing McMaster. Nope. That was close, but no cigar. Hi, you are on the air. What's your guess? Vincent Shaheen. Mm, beat him into the general, not the primary, not the runoff of the primary. Good guess, though. Yeah, real good guess. Very politically oriented and politically informed guesses, but not the right answer. Henry finished third in the primary. Nearly got in a runoff, but this candidate got 22% of the vote, I think, in the first round. Um, I mean, Nikki had a runoff the same time I did. I ran against Bill Connor in my runoff. Nikki ran against whom? Hi, you're on the air. What's your guess? Vincent Shaheen. Nope, that's in the general. He was a Democrat. Republican primary runoff hello you're on the air what's your guess andre nope andre was in there he finished behind henry it was henry excuse me it was nikki this person henry and andre who was this person hi you're on what's your guess 843-661 0937. <laughs> a little tough. Making them earn that Pepsi. Making them earn those uh, two takes Mondays to make Fridays T-shirts. Hi, you're on the air. What's your guess? Tim Scott. Nope, not Tim. Tim ran for Congress that Hi. year. You're on. What's your guess? Barrett. Gresham Barrett. You're right. Who is this? Where are you calling from? Tim ran for. This is Mike. Okay, Mike, sit tight. We'll get you back to um. We'll get you back to Josh. Only got a couple of seconds here. Gresham Barrett was a congressman from the upstate. I got a Gresham Barrett story. Rebels, of course you do. <laughs> Gresham was running for governor, called me. I decided to endorse and support Gresham, and then they taught me into running for lieutenant governor. <laughs> and I had to call Gresham and say, hey, man, I can't endorse. He thought, if I made you mad, I said, no, I'm running for lieutenant governor. <laughs> something's come up. Yeah, something's come up. Uh, enjoy your day and your weekend. We'll talk, not Monday, but Tuesday.